Hello and welcome to End on End. I'm Brian. And I am your guest co-host. I can say co-host, right? Just me yeah, and yeah. you. Greg. <laughs> That's it. Greg, welcome aboard. Thank you. This is exciting. Yeah, yeah. I know. You, you came on at a good time. It's such a good record and it's cool to have you. So for those who haven't heard him on the show before, Greg's from Where It Went podcast about Revelation Records. They do the same thing we do, going through the catalog, as well as a podcast about Husker Du and the replacements called Something to Do. Yeah, which, you know what? I'll say it on here, because then if I say it, it will happen. And it's totally on brand and relevant for what we're talking about. We, uh, on Something to Do, we occasionally have interviews. And that podcast is very infrequent, but we will be talking to Scott McLeod. Uh, on the next oh. episode, uh, he awesome. is a huge replacements fan. I'm really excited uh, to talk to him because uh, I, I loved the interview you did with him uh, on for the the first Soul Side album. You know, I always think it's cool to interview people talking about like it's always a interesting something. Band. Yeah, something <laughs> different. Like they're not, they can kind of mm-hmm. just like like we talk as as fans, and uh, right. that's cool. So I'm excited. He's a huge replacements fan. And uh, I wasn't aware of that, but I could totally see it. Yeah. yeah, He's, he's a mini, he's from Minneapolis originally, Minnesota. Hmm. Yeah. So stay tuned. Something to do. Hopefully be out (laughs) by, uh, I think we're talking to him at the end of this month. And so end of May, early June should be out. Awesome. We'll, we'll give it a uh, shout out on the show. Thank you. Sure. Too. Nice. Well, as we do, Greg, we kind of check in at the intro. So one, what have you been up to the last week or two? And also, if you've been checking out any cool uh, music and or other media, books, movies, etc. Sure. Uh, well, let's see. As far as what I've been doing, the usual, I work a lot, but working on the podcast, where it went, I guess, uh, you know, we... We, I got lucky when we first started where I think because it was the very beginning of this whole pandemic thing, which I, I, I kind of hate talking about it because then it, it, it dates everything, like someone going back <laughs> and listening to this to the uh, pandemic. Sure. But, you know, we got lucky and every week we were able to have, you know, a guest and basically every release, we've had somebody on that release. There was one episode where we had to get a little creative um, mm-hmm. but other than that, we, we did, and you know, now we're at a point where it's like sort of slowing. So we'll hopefully have some detours that we had that have been cool. Um, but like, it might yeah. not just be release after release after release. So yeah, doing that. You guys had a, uh, didn't, didn't you have a Patreon episode about Fugazi? We did. We did. Uh, it was called, yeah. uh, the Fugazi. We did, we do these discography challenges. We call it where like you just, <laughs> listen to a band's discography from front to back and then we'll like talk about it so the idea is that in theory you you like you know start working or whatever you're doing that day you put on fugazi seven songs and you listen straight through without listening to anything else so Mm -hmm. we did that and talked about you know talked about that we did one for shelter for patreon we did one for 108 which we actually had Kato 8 on. Um, cool. And 
we're also we're supposed to do one for Dag Nasty actually. Oh, um, wow. which will uh, we're gonna talk to uh, Oisey, who does End Hits Records mm-hmm. uh, over in overseas, right. and um, hopefully we do that soon. That's not Dag that Nasty's not cool. a challenge for me, but maybe <laughs> for some of the other guys. Uh, oh yeah, for one for of one them, of them, right? <laughs> Jason. Jason will be all right, but um, <laughs> yeah. So like we do that, but um, as far as like what I've been, well, I am listening to new music, but it's like yeah. new music by old ass people. <laughs> like <laughs> like I've been really into that new Dinosaur Junior, um, uh-huh. sweep it into space. And also the new um, Teenage Fan Club, Endless Arcade. And it's funny because I'm listening to these and I'm thinking like, these bands have been around for over 30 years. And they're still putting out stuff that I I like. I mean, especially that Dinosaur Jr. is really good. Um, Man, I'm so behind. I got to listen to that. I I wasn't even aware there was a new Teenage Fan Club. Yeah, it's. I mean, Teenage Fan Club, they're another one. They They put out a record every like five years and it's mm-hmm. usually good. They, you know, it's one of those things where with them, I have to accept that it's, they're not going to do bandwagon esque part two. Like it's not going to be oh, this like, yeah, noisy, that's never going to happen, <laughs> but they're, it's really good. I, I listen to both of them like every day. Oh, cool. And then uh, I, it's funny. Cause then that stuff brings me, you know, I usually get in these like kicks where like I start. Sure. So I've been listening to that and like a lot of, uh, the band from Canada, Sloan, oh, um, yeah. and uh, Sonic Youth. Okay. So, like, I'm down that whole rabbit hole of, of stuff. Yeah, almost kind of a college rocky. Yeah, which vibe. makes sense. I mean, I love Husker Du, the replacements. Like, mm-hmm. that whole, that's like my bread and butter. Yeah, so. Sloan were cool, too. Not not as well known in, in the States. I got to see them a couple of times, and a band I was in for a while in Las Vegas did a, a Sloan cover on a compilation. That was fun. Oh, really? What song? Yeah. Do you remember? I'm going to have to look it up. I don't remember. That's fine. <laughs> Honestly. Well, the funny yeah, thing yeah. about Sloan is that I didn't know this. Well, I knew that they came from like a punk background yeah. because they did this that EP punk of covers, covers where they like, you know, they had their faces on the minor threat, the famous mm-hmm. steps picture. And um, they covered, I think, a Minor Threat song. And I I forget what else I have on my computer. But uh, Chris Murphy, one of the main songwriters, guitar player, he was on that Turned Out a Punk podcast. And he, like, is, you know, in his 50s. But he was mainly inspired. He talks about taking a trip to D.C. uh, early on in his punk fandom and go i believe he mentioned like going to the discord house and stuff like that and like he identifies still as straight edge which is was wild to me yeah for sloan yeah that's awesome so like makes sense because the their first hit on their first record there's like a lyric he says something like i tell her i don't drink i tell her i don't (laughs) smoke and uh now you're like oh well makes sense but that's yeah, they're cool. they're really really great band, and there's another one still putting out stuff that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. To, to talk about like what is it like? Every one of them sings, and just the most 
talented melodic band you could think of. Yeah. Like modern power pop. They were all, and it's funny because like them, Sonic Youth, Teenage Fan Club, it all, for me, it was like I was playing that, um, that DGC rarities comp. Do you remember that? Like that came out in the nineties where they like tried to market D- the Geffen company as like this mm-hmm. hip indie, you know, cause it was like, yeah. it was like this comp and it had, you know, all it wasn't this... that no alternative one. No, but it was the same. It was that whole era of that stuff. Yeah. But I had like, you know, Sonic youth back hole, teenage fan club, Sloan, the posies and all that. So it was, it's just, it was nuts to me to, you know, it was like really taking me back and thinking too about how wild it was in the nineties that all these bands like got these big record deals. Oh yeah. And now they're all oh, yeah. like either broken up or back on or back indies. on these. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the nineties were crazy. You know, they were signing any kind of semi like shred of melody punk band at the time. Yeah. It was wild. But uh yeah, that's cool to hear. Uh, only thing I've been checked out that's new to me is this band that I have a feeling you're familiar with. Uh, I've talked to the singer off and on for a bunch of months through the show, but this band called Locked Inside from New York. Oh, yeah. Straight Edge band. Yeah. Ed, uh, my old friend Ed McCurdy is the singer. McCurdy, yeah. Yeah. It's cool stuff. It's fun. Very, you know, that whole you know this genre way better than me but just that to me it sounds like that uh just kind of cool high energy uh metallic tinge straight edge kind of thing from the lineage of something like judge or whatnot and it's got cool youth crew sing along yeah they're good i would like to i often when show when there's shows coming back i'll have to catch them live i don't know they've because of my work schedule, I miss so many shows. I'm sure they've played Philly. I'm sorry, Ed, if you're listening. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I'm sure they played, and I just, you know, wasn't there. But I plan on I plan on trying to change that. Uh, you know, not taking stuff for granted as much. Um, yeah. You know, maybe, one of the gifts of COVID. Yeah, to just be like, you know what? Yeah, you're gonna be tired tomorrow, but tough. It's better. You'll have a yeah, you'll have a nice time. You'll a nice have a memory. show memory. Yeah. Um, oh, you know what I did check, you know what I did check out because of, of your show that I liked was that Jade Dust. Oh yeah. Uh, demo. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's good. Totally good stuff. And I'm, I was excited to see they've got a, a 12 inch coming out later too. Oh, I didn't see that. Are they self-releasing yeah. it or? It might be on Extinction Burst as well that put out the tape. Cool. I can't Yeah. Recall. They're good. They're good. Yeah. I like them very, you know, obviously very dc influenced but still have a little more hardcore than a lot of the dc stuff but yeah you know and and one last thing i'd say about locked inside was the uh song they released was towards the end of last year called force of will and super heavy really good song i enjoyed that as well as like checking on youtube they there's like them doing get it away from ssd at some live show i I stole that too is that the one that was at the a7 right like it was like this little oh yeah it looks i love ssd oh Uh, for sure man that's uh, that's like untouchable that record in particular but yeah that's the only music i've I've checked out new lately but there obviously there's been a lot of news 
afoot in the Discord world lately. Yeah. Man, people are going nuts uh, posting about that Discord 200 box set that's coming out. I got messaged at least five times with that link. Yeah. <laughs> like I was on my lunch, you know, I work remotely. I was on my lunch break sitting outside with my wife and I got it. And, you know, sometimes you get so frazzled and I'm like, I had to read it a couple times. Yeah. And I was like, but I didn't want it to get sell out. Now I love the way they're doing it. It's like this inclusive thing where they're saying like, you have a month to order it. Mm-hmm. And you don't order it then. decide how Tough. much. Right. Yeah. Which the amount of people that I send it to that are like ordered. Yep. There's a lot. Oh, it's gonna yeah. Be a, it's going to be a very large amount. Um, I think so. I, I had at least 10 people send me the link that all had already ordered. Yeah, it. I ordered I, it. I ordered it. You know. I said, I'm not waiting. I mean, I've talked about it a little bit actually with Jeff, uh, mm-hmm. you know, back and forth on the, on the DAG, DAG house board where I frequent during, during the work week. And yeah. I'm just so happy to be able to own these as seven inches. You know, as I had seven, the for sure. CD with the, the mall and I have the 12 inch with the mall. And of course I have the minor threat, but something mm-hmm. about having this, I'm like, I'm over yeah, the moon. And the original pot packaging, et cetera. That's going to be nice. Yeah. Rev should do the same thing. Yeah. It's a great idea, especially too. I can't remember who was talking to about it. I feel like it was Ben, but just that Discord hasn't been... Oh, maybe... Shit, it might have been listening to your show. Anyway, just that, you know, labels are very reticent to reissue 7 inches versus 12 inches, you know? Yes, yes. So that's why I think it's cool. And that's why I'm assuming they did it as a box set. Yeah, because if they just did them individually, I mean, I would get them all individually, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, let's face it, Discord have still, even with, you know, having to raise their prices because, you know, in what inflation or whatever, you know, yeah, like postage and stuff, they have the the best prices. Like when I saw the price for that box set, I was like, is it missing a uh, a one, (laughs) not a zero, but like, I was like, I was like, yeah, they, yeah. or is it like, like you know, because given how much seven inches cost now alone, you know, yeah. a seven inch can be it's like ridiculous. 10 bucks. So like you're getting six, seven inches and a book. Yeah. And they, when people press seven inches now, they barely make any money. It costs almost the same as pressing a 12 inch at this point. Yeah. So, But um, I'm over the moon excited about it. Um, yeah. If we get it at the end of 2021, awesome. Don't even care about waiting. I will wait, you know. uh, Yeah, which which brings the question that me and Jeff were talking about. That leaves eight more Discord numbers in between. And are they going to release all that many? That would be their busiest year in years and years if they did. If I'm not mistaken, they... And, and I think Rev does this too. They sort of like hold certain numbers. Like we know that every 10, every 10. is, a, is mm-hmm. an Ian thing, right? Or yeah. like, or it's, or it's a, um, well, he's still involved, but you know, like the box, the CD box set for 150, which I have, which uh, mm-hmm. 
so I don't think that like by the end of the year, they're going to have eight new releases, I know. <laughs> um, which would be nuts. I, and, and cause keep in mind too, like when they reissue stuff, like we talked about off air, sometimes it gets a new catalog number. If it's like, like, you know, in the old days when they threw a bunch of stuff on a CD, you know, that, yeah. that got its own it's number. A, different releases but, together. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that's not just the straight up LP because I, and I hope, hopefully someone at discord is listening, <laughs> but they got a the Longfish catalog, oh, especially yeah. with how quick that Love is Love sold. They're sitting on some money. And I know that's not like necessarily the, the, dis- the Discord <laughs> way, but um like if they announced, you know, necrophones and feral hymns and all these ones repressed. Yeah, which are really hard to they're very to hard to find. And yeah. um so someone at Discord, I'm telling you, there's a Longfish Facebook group. I guarantee you half the people on there would order a record, you know, oh, day easy. of, yep. because, um, my friend, when he sent me the link, when they did that love is love, he's like, you better, he's like, if you want it, I'd order it. These go quick. And mm-hmm. I was like, all right. And lo and behold, like within a day it was gone. And then same thing with that dag nasty on green. Yeah. Which just was what last week. So. And then, no, they did the new, uh, the dag with Sean. Oh, oh, you're talking about the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I yeah. say on green? Can I say that's right. And I'm not a big uh, multiple copies guy, mm-hmm. but they do them. Like I had to. Yeah, they do a good <laughs> job. Yeah, they, they, uh, they really do a good job. So, yeah, it's been, it's been fun this year seeing just how much they've been reissuing. Cause they, they've been kind of on a roll with that. And, you know, they said that, supposed to be a hammered holes lp that's recorded that hopefully that'll see the light of day really soon oh it's an lp yeah holy. i know i saw the pictures um that'll be great and maybe they'll put the seven inch back in print luckily i have yeah. i have one but i know people that are like oh man i couldn't find the seven inch yep i didn't get i didn't get one in time yeah and when i was at discord last year you know, Ian had talked about the Corky had already done more recording and stuff, but I don't know if he's waiting, going to wait for another 10 after the 200 to release any of that or what, but who yeah, knows? I guess hopefully not. Right. I know that'd be I, a long time. I have that. <laughs> I, I have that record and it's weird. Some of the stuff that they don't keep in print, like why, I mean, I ended up having to pay a decent sum cause I, I wanted to try and have all of Ian's stuff. Mm-hmm. So I got like the evens and that stuff is hard to find too now, which is, is funny. It? Cause it, yeah. yeah, at least the first, the first LP and the last LP, my, my record store had like a dead stock of the, of the second album that I was able to get like, you know, 16 bucks or whatever, but right. the other ones I had to pay, um, mm. you know, more than, more than the regular list price. But That's my um my esteemed co-host and friend uh, on my on where it went Javier, he has this mantra that uh, it's true, not always good for your wallet, but the time to buy it is when you see it, because <laughs> a lot of times you go oh, I'm, yeah. I'll pass this and you either forget, mm-hmm. you know, or you just or it sells out. Yeah, and, you, and, and I feel like nowadays, more and more these days. Yeah, I was gonna say nowadays, 
you almost can't predict what's going to sell out and what's not. Yeah. So you almost just like, good point. like if you really think, know you're going to want it, pull the trigger. Yeah. See what I did there? <laughs> uh, pull, pull the trigger because for all you know, there's a million other people that want it. Or yeah, you could order it and then, you know, it sits there and eventually goes in the used bin or whatever. But right, right. that's a risk you got to take. Exactly. Cool. Well, only other thing I wanted to bring up for the intro is kind of different for the show. Like I had something happen to me yesterday at my work, one of my jobs at the vitamin shop where I work, where I saw this guy outside through the windows, like looked semi-homeless, kind of looked shaky and uh, frail and was smoking a cigarette. And then he put it, put on a mask and came in the store. And, you know, part of me was like, oh, I wonder what his story is. And the other part of me was was kind of in retail mode of like, oh, no, you know, what's this going to be? Yeah, kind of callous or whatever. And, you know, he came in and looked around for a bit and actually eventually ended up buying something. But he mostly wanted to talk. He had this loose bandage around his arm that was coming off he had sores on his face he he said he was 70 he looked like 80 at least but you know really rough shape pale skin his hair was all patchy and you know it really touched something in me because it made me so uncomfortable and I've been thinking about it ever since like why was I uncomfortable and he didn't ask for money nothing like that but, you know, I think what it was is that I wanted to, you know, when you see someone in just in such a condition, at least part of you wants to do something, wants to be able to think that they can do something to help. But I couldn't figure out what that was. And the other part of me was just uncomfortable with my uncomfortableness and wanted to hope that he could, that he would leave soon. And, you know, he proceeded to tell me that he's got at least a couple kinds of cancer his My wife goodness. just died a couple weeks earlier he can't hold food down so he's asking what kind of product to get and it was it was intense and like i said i was still kind of wrestling with that today you know all i was able to give him is maybe all i could have given him anyhow which was kind of an acknowledgement of his humanity and just my presence, my compassionate, full presence. But still, it kind of brought to mind as well, kind of the things, like he's the embodiment, one of a socio-political culture we live in, and people that fall through the cracks, you know, whether it's through drugs, alcohol, mental illness, or just hard life conditions. And two, you know, uh, on a spiritual level, it reminded me of the story of Buddha when he was young. He was a prince. His father had a kingdom, grand kingdom, never wanted his son to uh, experience any hardship, anything, only wanted him to be a king. And he uh, had some holy man see, see his son, see the Buddha and say, he's either going to be one of the greatest rulers in the world or he's going to become a... Uh, a spiritual leader and his father want, didn't want him to go into the spiritual path. So he tried to 
shield him from anything but, you know, uh, opulent living and, and political maneuvering. And so anytime he would go out outside of the kingdom into the streets, he would, the king would make sure that he never saw any the people that were less fortunate, you know, all the, the conditions of life, the sickness, old age, death, suffering, that kind of thing. Except by the time he reached uh, teenage years, he snuck out one night and, of course, ran into all those conditions. And, you know, th this guy yesterday brought that story to mind of, you know, the, the conditions of life that just by a simple twist of fate, you know, I could in some ways be myself. And, you know, he is, was kind of like a walking embodiment of the things that we all face at one point in another, whether it's ourself and or people we care about throughout our life. In another way, it's maybe think about this record. This record trigger is kind of a call to arms, both uh, internally and externally. I was thinking that too. There's a lot of it's very uh, it's very anthemic. Oh, like, yeah. uh, there's That's a lot a of there's a lot of the, the the lyrics are designed to be memorized mm -hmm. and. Uh, sung back you know and yeah the the we're gonna get into all the you're right <laughs> all that soon spoiler but, alert yeah exactly but anyhow yeah it just i don't know that just that experience really stayed with me for some reason i guess because it was my reaction to it as much as the experience itself because you know of course if you live in a city anywhere you've seen homeless people you've seen people on crack you've seen you know this or that but yeah i don't know it's just something that that came to mind because it was in my consciousness from yesterday anyhow with that you ready to uh get into the historical side of the show yes i am i i'm used to hearing uh i'm used to hearing jeff i know he's so good at it and he's got his authoritative voice it's great for, for telling the history, whereas this is going to be painful for me. <laughs> uh, nah, you got this. You got this. Yeah, well, well, well like, luckily. Like you said, there's it, this isn't, we already, you already did the history leading. You know, you've talked about the lunch mm -hmm. meat uh, yep. era and then the first, first, first LP. And yep. then, you know, now. And, I, and you already talked about the personnel change, I believe, right? Uh, Chris, we did. We touched on that. Yeah, Chris uh, is out, out, and then uh, yes. Johnny, right? Is Johnny Temple? Johnny yeah. Temple is in. Yeah. So yeah, where we left off was exactly there. Like the band, as was their want up to that point, would be a band in the summertime and on uh, winter break, and then they'd all go back to college, and they would only be a, they would get together and tour and record and do as much as they could in those old breaks. And Chris Thompson decided that wasn't what he wanted to do anymore. And I'm sure it didn't hurt to have the allure of being in a band with, with Chris Bald and Alec Mackay. You know, I'm sure that was very tempting as well. So. Yeah, so and then you get two that. killer bands. Like that's the way I see it. It's like, Oh, for sure. Win, win. And I mean, Johnny Temple, stepped in and yeah i actually wanted to, i was ready to start talking about what he added to the band but we're going to get to that but uh yeah you know johnny was a friend of bobby's from way back and hadn't played a little bit and played in a couple 
little projects here and there, but never uh, in any bands that played any DC shows, anything like that. I think the first show we ever played, he talks about in the interview, was a show opening up for Rollins Band in uh, New Jersey or something with Soulside. So well, I can't even imagine show. that. Yeah. So one of the cool things with Soulside to me is they, I feel like more than a lot of the other DC bands, they played a lot of hardcore shows. But like, not, I mean, hardcore shows like, outside of dc DC. like there's like crossover between the where it went world and and the end on end because a lot lot. there's there's that one show in california and i think it was the last i'm using last in air quotes the last youth of today show and it's like youth of today chain of strength underdog soul side and they talked about it i believe in might have been in the chain episode or one of the episodes. It was just the kind of thing where it's like Bobby reached out. Hey, we need a show. Cool. You know, and then Richie <laughs> underdog. Hey, we need a show. Cool. And it just snowballs, but they did yeah. shows with youth of today. Yeah. Like, Gorilla and, um, Biscuits. yeah, but yeah. So, so the band in 1987 decided, okay, in the summer, we're not going to go back to college. We're all going to, take this band seriously we're gonna do it full on and that's what they did and that's when johnny came in that's what the the, one they came back and recorded you know within a few months of coming back or after the summer i should say they recorded this album that we're going to talk about today and i've got a couple quotes it's always good to get quotes from different people but the two i found that are most pertinent have happened to be bobby's so I'll just say, you know, one's from the book Spoke, and this one's kind of a good little encapsulation of the beginning up up to this point. So Bobby says, lunch meat to me felt like a group of kids trying something new for the sole purpose of having fun. We hadn't really found a distinction at the time, a direction. After all, the band had a jokey name. Soulside was something we took very seriously after playing with some of the great DC bands. Crafting a sound, constructing songs in as many different ways as possible. We were working on taking music in a new direction. We were on a mission, and I was certainly more passionate about the subject matter of the songs. And you can tell, which we'll get into. Oh, yeah. Big time. But yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, you were, when I rudely interrupted you, you were going to tell me your, uh, your history nah, with Soulside. Yeah, you were rudely interrupted. <laughs> I uh, I go I tend to go off the rails when I'm talking about stuff I enjoy. So yeah, I I was thinking and prep for this episode. Some of the bands that I love from the whole DC thing, Gray Matter and Soulside, and three well three you know I lump like for some reason they weren't on my radar as a as a young kid devouring Discord. Hmm. Almost all the other essentials were because I mean Soulside is absolutely essential gray yeah. matter three that's all essential um but i probably didn't get into soul side until maybe the last like decade oh wow that's um interesting. and you know then when they did the reunions and they played shows and they played here in philly and my band got to open for them i was gonna say i thought you had mentioned that i was gonna ask. and i mean they were just so good but yeah it's one of the, i don't i and i don't even know why i, I was I was a girls against boys fan. So that was even like, I saw girls against boys in the nineties mm-hmm. and um, 
for whatever reason. And it's not even like they didn't have a CD. They had a CD, just, you know, <laughs> well, not a discography it was missing the, the first album, but they had like True. the soon yeah. come happy CD, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which now I have it's in the car currently, but <laughs> I feel like, like when I listened to this though, I was like, I don't know if 14 year old me would have been as into it as, you know, whenever I heard him 20 something year old me, uh-huh. you know, well, now I'm 40, but 40 year old me is super fucking stoked on him. <laughs> but like, I feel like it's a little like, um, what's well, not what you guys in your podcast would call starter pack hardcore. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, to me, it's like absolutely essential. Yeah. And I think that soul side are a much bigger piece of the puzzle of like post hardcore. Yes. Then maybe they're given credit that. for. Oh, God, um, yeah. they totally are. Especially when you listen to this again. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. And, and also hot body Graham, mm-hmm. uh, Chris Bratton on our, on our podcast, um, had said that one of the uh, defining moments for Zach from Rage Against the Machine um, was him seeing Soulside. And there's actually that live, I think it's a seven inch, and you oh, can see uh-huh. Zach in the crowd. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, it's almost like, you know, Chris had mentioned basically like he was like taking notes. Huh. But if you really, there's a byline from Soulside to. Rage. Rage against the machine, yeah. but also even to stuff like quicksand mm-hmm. and um, post hardcore. Oh, and, so uh, many nineties hardcore bands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's like, I'm actually glad because I feel like if I would have heard them when I was 15, I'd have been like, this is cool. Like I, I w- definitely wouldn't have like tossed the CD, but I think they would have just been another, it's kind of cool. Whereas hearing them at like, you know, 28 or whatever, I was like, oh, yeah, this is fucking sick. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Obviously, my story's a little, little different. Grew up there, whatever, which people know. But seeing them live around that the time that this came out and right before, with so, you know, it they were obviously had stepped their game up to next level because I loved all the early lunch meat stuff as well. Their shows were so fun. But yeah, instead of becoming, instead of sounding like a young, full of energy scrappy young guys band all of a sudden they had their own sound when they hit this record they they defined like their own thing yeah that's what i wanted to say is they don't sound like young kids on this like like they sound like because my understanding is obviously those guys are probably at least five years younger than the first generation of DC guys. Like, yeah, you know, just the, about that. Yeah. You're Henry and Ian and all that. And, uh, and like the scream guys. Mm-hmm. But to me, the, this, I mean, in some of the ways, some of this stuff, I mean, they, I see they thank Fugazi, but do they predate Fugazi? Yes, they do. And well, they do, but this came out, I'm trying to think. It was pretty concurrent when they both were kind of getting yeah, their sound. This says it was recorded December 87. I know the first Fugazi show was September, September mm-hmm. of 87. So Yeah, so live, live, great. They they got so powerful. I mean, one, as we talked on the last episode with them, they kind of upgraded their equipment so their sound got bigger. They They got more confident. They started experimenting as it comes out, you know through on the record they started doing things like having the whole stage full of tv sets and 
different uh, lighting things and like strobe lights sometimes or the whole thing they did on the uh, seven inch next they would do live sometimes with like power tools and stuff on stages it was all uh, it, you, you didn't know what you were going to get at a show which was awesome and just so much energy so much energy live such a good band like I think it was around this time it might have been right after but one show I saw in DC, it was them. It was the first time I got to see Verbal Assault live. I had their demo early days, but it was them and Verbal Assault, and I want to say Dag Nasty. Oh but, my God. <laughs> yeah, it was a great show. <laughs> but like uh, Scott had a broken arm, and he still played a whole set like with this cast on his arm. You could see him like totally gritting his teeth in pain, but just kind of a showing their dedication i don't know it was so cool yeah you know i don't just i think i'll get into it a little bit some more of my memories more of the live type memories and different things like that as we drop the needle so i i, I that's that's where i'll keep it i mean i used to talk to bobby quite a bit especially in the lunch meet days in early soul side around this time I guess they were touring a lot and my life was going in different directions as well. So we weren't as tight at this point, but they were so good to see live. Such a great band. All right. Well, let's talk to bassist Johnny Temple.
thanks Johnny Temple for for being here. Thanks for being on the show, taking the time to talk about Trigger today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, you know, I I know you were friends with the guys uh, bef before you joined the band. Had you worked at Ross Records with Bobby uh, previous to playing bass? Yes, yes. I Bobby and I worked at Ross Records starting in i believe the summer of 1983 oh wow yeah and i didn't join soulside until 1987 and bobby and i both worked at ross we were probably one or both of us were probably still doing some hours there in even in those early days of me joining soulside um yeah we, we i went to gds the school where a lot of great DC punk rockers came out of, including half of minor threat, um, as well as many school. Right? What's that Georgetown day school. Yeah. And then after 10th, I had gone there for a long time. And after 10th grade, I switched to Wilson where, which was a big public school. GDS was a small liberal arts private school. And Wilson was a big public school where the other half of minor threat went. So I went from one, one school that had, a lot of people that involved in the punk rock scene at that time to another, but I wasn't yet actually involved in it. And it's when I switched to Wilson after 10th grade, starting in 11th grade, like right at the top of that year, I met Bobby and he was a year younger. Um, but we, we, uh, we, st we became fast friends and he kind of pulled me. I, I knew people like I knew Brian Baker and people from, you know, punk rock bands, but I wasn't, like engaged with the music and and too much and then bobby bobby kind of helped to pull me in had you been playing music yourself previous to uh getting in the band yeah i probably st well i i mean i played various instruments growing up but i didn't become serious about the bass until i was about 18 mm. and i joined soulside when i was maybe 20. So I, I had been playing for a couple of years, but as perhaps we will talk about, it's apparent to me when I listen to Trigger how much I'm still in the middle of a, a very steep learning curve in terms of playing <laughs> the bass. So I was not that not that I ever stopped learning. Even today, I'm still learning how to obviously play the bass, but there was a lot of basics I didn't quite <laughs> have, have down yet. Um, I'd only been playing for a couple of years and not too seriously. And had you played with other folks before, before Soulside? Uh, just, just friends, but not a serious, I don't know that I ever played a pub, a real public gig until the first Soulside gig I played maybe. That made that as as a bass player, yeah. Um, yeah so, so I, I I hadn't played seriously in any in any other bands. How and when did they approach you about actually joining the band or trying out for the band? Um, Chris Thompson quit the band in I guess early. That would have been early 1987, right around the time that the very first Soulside record often called Less Deep Inside Keeps, although I don't know if that's the official title of it. <laughs> and uh, um, that which was put out co-release between Samich Records and Discord. It was really Samich Records. And right when that record was coming out, which I think if I'm if I have my timeline correct, would have been early 87. And Chris quit the band. And 
they were, you know, they needed to, they needed a bass player and Bobby and I were super close. And I knew, I also knew Scott and Alexis because we all went to Wilson, um, mm -hmm. Wilson High School. And I didn't know Scott and Alexis. I probably knew Alexis better than Scott, but I knew Bobby way better than either of them, but we were all friendly. And so I sort of met up with them and in Scott's parents' basement um, which was the, really the whole, the soul side rehearsal space for the era that I was in. And, uh, yeah. And we, they gave me, they made a leap of faith, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm really <laughs> very appreciative of. When you guys first, uh, had those first practices and whatnot in the basement, were you playing the older songs or were you already starting on the new stuff? Probably the very first time I played was was the old song because in a sense they were auditioning me. Mm -hmm. That's probably not the the language that we used. Sure. It was more like, hey, you want to come try playing with us, you know? And um probably there wasn't new songs that very first rehearsal, but I'm sure, you know, maybe they said, Okay, you got the gig, you know, like you're in the you're in the band. And then I'm sure that the next practice then would have been um, included new material. Right. Um, okay. And, and what do you remember, uh, or do you have a vivid memory of the very first show you played with the band? Yes. Depending on what you want to call our first show, we sort of had two first shows and, and what should be the, considered <laughs> the first show, if, even if it technically isn't, is, Soulside opened up for the Henry Rollins band at TT the Bears place in in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, and this would have been in early summer or or midsummer '87. That was I remember Rollins like sound checking and how intense he was at the sound check, <laughs> which was intimidating. You know, it was intimidating enough to be playing opening for the Rollins band, but then he had like a super intense vibe. Bobby knew Bobby's brother was close with Henry and um from back then yeah from back then um because Bobby's brother Mark Sullivan was part of that original DC punk crew with you know Jeff Nelson Ian McKay Mark Sullivan Henry Rollins and 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 others so so Bobby knew Henry and and in coming years I would come to know Henry but I didn't know him that I was just intimidated <laughs> Um, and that's the main thing I, that's the main thing I remember, but <laughs> truth be told on the way from DC up to Cambridge, we played the night before on my the college. I went to Wesleyan on the Wesleyan campus at a sort of fraternity house, but it was really more artists and drug addicts. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, there was nothing fraternity like about it. Um, a bunch of misfits and they used to put on the good shows at that school. So Soulside actually played there, but that was uh, awkward, weird experience for me. So I prefer to kind of blot that out of uh, my mind uh, uh. and think of the TT, the bears gig as, as our first real, real show. Yeah. And that, that had to be kind of a big one too, for a very first show. Yeah, it was a small club. I mean, it was packed, but it was a small club. You know, it was probably, I don't know if it was like a 200 or 300 capacity club, but for sure, yeah, playing before like a full audience, scary and <laughs> exciting. Yeah, sure. And as you guys started writing the material for Trigger and 
and so on uh the band sound you know whether natural naturally would have happened that way or not kind of took on a different tone the guitar got much more uh scratchy punchy uh, percussive and, and you know your bass became the driving melody force to my ears anyway anyhow and uh just everybody kind of came into their own as a as a musician it seemed like not that the early soul side didn't have a certain vibe but it became much more individual sounding by the songs on this this record that's coming up what did you bring into it and what what were you checking out and uh taking as far as a statement of intent for your bass plan one obvious thing that i brought was along with bobby but was a sort of in a, a reggae influence and but it's always been important to me and it's important to me now like i never wanted to be a reggae bass player um never aspired to be but i think that it's like the i've always been deeply in, influenced by reggae music not trying to play reggae style right. bass lines but the but reggae music absolutely informs the way that i play bass and and um so that was that was one you know uh, sort of a rhythm a rhythm orientation and you know in in soul side and then later in girls against boys like the music that i've always been part of is often as much rhythmically based as melodically based mm -hmm. um obviously you want a perfect combination <laughs> but, um sure. but um but certainly we started to in soul side in that time and i'm not saying i'm not crediting myself with this but i'm just saying in terms of the interest that i had you know the industrial music i wasn't so much listening to industrial music although i, I guess a little bit like killing joke certainly okay. um yeah. But um, I think we all had different influences for sure. But a lot of the influences had driving rhythms, e even when the influences were different and a strong emphasis on, you know, the rhythms not being uh, sort of like stereotypical punk rock beats. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even know if Alexis can play like a, 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 a stereo. <laughs> I'm, actually, I know he can beat. because, yeah, like a hardcore beat. And we were playing hardcore music, but 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 it was something was something a little different rhythmically was going on than hardcore music. Although we were coming from Washington D.C., where every band was pressuring themselves to to break new ground, and so right. there was a. We, we were also part of a obviously a community of musicians that we were influenced by mm -hmm. and hopefully we influenced as well so we weren't you know obviously there's other bands that were placing a strong em emphasis on rhythm as well as, and and it makes sense dc being dc a very r&b go-go music influence oh, city sure. yeah especially then too what's your memories of the actual recording session was that the very first time you had been in inner ear or a studio in in general. I had been at inner ear, maybe once or twice, um, either running errands or hanging out with Bobby, like running errands, or maybe Soulside. I'm forgetting where Soul where the very first Soulside record was recorded. That might have been at inner ear, and then I I mm -hmm. I, th I think I sent, might have sang back up on a couple song 
oh, a okay. couple that songs sounds, that does sound on right the, actually on the first soul side record so i had been in there before but i hadn't you know it was the first time i was professionally recording doing a professional recording it was exciting and scary and intimidating you know uh donzi and tara and um and more so ian ian mckay and eli as well so it was um it was a learning experience um for sure and that was at the very end of the year right and December of 87. Is that right? Uh, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One, how, how long did you guys take to record this? And also, I guess, within that question as well, maybe if you could say what each person brought to it besides the band, like Ian, Don, Eli, to the procession. Um, I think we, we must have recorded it in... I'm going to guess three days. I don't really remember, but I'm, I would have, I'm, I'm imagining that's what it had been somewhere between two and four days. Right. I'm thinking th Which three is pretty is common around then. Yeah. Three is probably. And um, I remember really my memory and my memory can be quite spotty. Um, so I always like to cross check my memories. And it is interesting with bands when you're talking about so long ago, we can all have very different memories of the exact same thing where we agree on yeah. the basic, on certain basic facts, yeah. but then the t tone and things we don't, we remember differently. Um, oh yeah. It, it, I've come across that so much doing these interviews over the last year or so. It's the, uh, the punk rock version of the Rashomon effect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I remember like Ian being at the helm um, and him kind of coaching us along, giving us pointers and, but, you know, largely in a very sort of hands-off kind of way, you know, he wanted us, us to be doing our thing. Sure. And I, I mean, it was, it was all new to me. So I didn't, you know, that's where I learned that, oh, when you're in the studio, you spend a lot of your time just sitting around. Like that's mm -hmm. what being in the studio is, is you're sitting around. And then all of a sudden you're, not sitting around and the pressure's yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, you're 100% on for those matter of minutes or however long. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of like on tour when most of it's sitting around until the show. Yeah, and then all of a sudden everything's different. Like I said, I was still learning to play the bass, so it was a pretty, not to keep repeating myself, but it was a pretty intimidating experience. And obviously it was the, when I look back at all the recording sessions I've done, it was the one where I least knew how to, I had a least grip on my instrument. And I'm proud of the bass lines on this record. And I'm proud of what I was trying to do and what I was aiming for. Um, yeah, that's why but, it, it surprises me to hear you so uh, critical of the, or unsure of, of your performances from that uh, session. Cause yeah, some of those bass lines are totally iconic and influenced me as a bass player as a kid learning stuff your bass lines were some of the lines i learned when i was trying to figure out how to navigate around the instrument that's awesome that's so cool to hear yeah no i mean like i say i was i actually think i i'm proud of the bass lines themselves hmm. it's I, really what i'm talking about is like my performance um and and when we recorded that like you could redo something but we're really trying to capture like a, a feeling. And that was also part of Ian's influence is really want trying to, you want the take <laughs> that has the best, the best overall, overall yeah, energy and, and um, excitement. And 
So, and then it's less about the individual, you know, performances and more about, you know, how they all mesh together. Wish I could sneak back in and do a, a few fixes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's always the case to some degree. Like the the tone, speaking of that, the tones on the recording are whether purposeful or not on pretty much all the instruments except for maybe the vocals, like really different than your typical uh, inner ear guitar bass drum sounds was how uh purposeful was that that was above my that (laughs) at that time that was above my my head and i think that could be the eli influence on the engine engineering side eli was starting to you know really come into his own as a as a recording engineer and and ultimately then a producer as well but i think he was really focused on engineering working a lot with don particularly with the next Soulside record, Hot Body Gram, mm-hmm. I think that you could really feel e- e- Eli's sonic sonic influence. I, I don't think I was too conscious of, again, at the, at the time, I was just too nervous about the whole experience and trying to keep my own playing together and whatnot. And what whatever, like, Eli and Don and Ian were doing at the board was a little bit of a mystery to me, you know? Mm-hmm. They were the um, wizards in the other room. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but that's, that's interesting to, about that. I don't think I've ever really co- kind of noticed that myself, that, that there's something tonally different in trigger. I notice it more with hot body gram, but, um, but you're hearing it. And I guess maybe other people are hearing it with trigger. I hear new things we were doing, but I, I, I hadn't really thought of it so much as in terms of, you know, the sonic, the, um, the, 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 rec- that, yeah, the tonal element. Yeah, was somewhat cognizant of it back in the day when it came out and re-listening for the show. I, I, I it jumps out at me as well. And, and I don't know how if maybe you were going direct or going direct and through an amp, but it's got a very direct sound to the to the bass. Yes, um, that's also that. And speaking specifically about the bass, that's also because. When we got to the studio, my bass was kind of like crapping out a little bit, mm-hmm. or it just didn't sound good. I think it was my old Ibanez bass, which was like a fun and cool bass, but it, it actually wasn't like, and it had like a, I, I had a nice low end to it, but it, under the microscope of a studio, it just sounded maybe flat or something. And so I ended up borrowing Joe Lally's bass, and that is a very different bass tone than anything else I've ever played. And it, 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 I know exactly what you're talking about with regards to the bass. It's, it's, yeah, it sounds almost like it's playing direct, mm-hmm. but it was, that was also because I was playing in, on his bass on the fly and I hadn't like fully settled in, into it. Yeah, I know, I, know you, I don't think, yeah, I hadn't figured out the tone and I don't think you were saying that critically, but, no. but that's another thing that stands out to me. And you listen to early, or I listen to like early Fugazi records, and it's his bass sounds so much like his bass. It sounds mm-hmm. very different when I'm playing it, and especially then I was nowhere near as technically proficient as Joe. And um, so with him, he's you know Joe just has this complete. His sense of rhythm is oh. beautiful. Always has been. Always will be. I'm sure. And another um, reggae influence sounding bass yeah and but his his bass tone is actually very traditionally very different than my bass tones in everything else except for trigger and not that 
I'm not trying to say my bass playing sounds like Joe Lally on Trigger, <laughs> but but I think that I, I really can hear his bass on it. Yeah, that's interesting. Was there any certain moment or song where you felt like, oh, this is clicking or this is hearing it through the studio that, okay, this is our sound. This is, you know, what this is about or not. Yeah, I think um, Trigger, the song Trigger was, and to me is really awesome. And when Soulside has played in recent years, that song's always been, um, it's a, I like the like I like the baseline and which is it, which is the the main refrain like the the main part like this in the verse, um, and it's a simple baseline but it's I think it's got a a cool little groove to it, yeah. and um, I remember in the studio Ian said it sounded like uh, it reminded him of Sweet Emotion the uh, uh, Aerosmith song, which funny. when if you listen yes yeah, it's, it's kind of evident but but anyway it was because it was a simple line. I could just set it's like it was a song that I could sort of settle into a little bit more easily, regardless mm-hmm. of which bass I'm playing on or what <laughs> studio or whatever. So that helped. I think that for me helped to like anchor me a little bit. Um, and, and that's, and, and also of course the song name in mind. Yeah. Scott's guitars just sound so incredible on that song and it's a cool song. Uh, and, it's an exciting song and to hear it, I remember hearing it in the studio and hearing it with like all the instruments loud and powerful, but in all that guitar tone, that was, that was pretty great. That was my favorite song at that, at that point when that came out, you know, one of my bands later uh, did a cover besides that point, but at some point we did a cover of walking by myself where we in the middle of it went into name in mind for a minute. Yeah. And- back into yeah do you have a recording no there's a I, there's just video well, i mean are you even a demo do you have a basement tape i'd love to hear that if i find the uh if if one of my other bandmates has a copy of the uh we just have it on a video uh, of a show we played in california at one point but if we you find so you that, do that live yeah yeah we did it at a live show <laughs> wow. we didn't record it we did, yeah but anyhow yeah uh, that's yeah such a fun baseline to play too <laughs> i'm trying to recall my memory is selective as well like i saw you guys quite a bit and you know before and then af- and after the trigger era was it right away that you guys started experimenting live with all the different elements like the tv sets and the different lighting and sometimes trying to think what else you guys did you like when you had for the like the seven inch was either right before or after it came out and you at 9 30 i remember you guys having like drills and stuff on stage and that sort of thing did that start happening pretty much right away when you were in the band or is it kind yeah. of as you're going yeah it started as soon as we started playing live and, and touring yeah there were like tv sets mm-hmm. stacked up yeah you know i was still very much the new guy and like hell all right sound this is <laughs> yeah, sure <laughs> like this this is cool i i mean like I, I let's sure let's stack up a bunch of tv sets um and let's <laughs> add some industrial tools to the <laughs> <Yeah>. equipment arsenal <laughs> um 
And obviously that was a bit of a industrial music influence. But again, right. that wasn't particularly my influence or what I was bringing, but I was, I was happy to be part of a dynamic creative right. <laughs> unit. Yeah, which I mean, the dual, or I guess more than dual, but the influence from both the industrial and the reggae side come together on on war, you know, the cover of war, because that's kind of like an industrial punk cover of the, uh, you know, of the Barb Marley song. So, you know, I thought that was, uh, that was pretty cool that you guys did that. And that's what I, that's when I remember, I remember you guys opening at Wilson Center show with playing that song with all the TVs going and all that sort of thing. You know, this is kind of going a little past this era, but you know, a lot was said about the breakup of the band. Everybody except for Bobby wasn't as comfortable with the overt political elements. But, uh, you know, it's just uh, what, what's your take on that? Was that your experience, your, your memory? Because it's interesting, you know, the trajectory where, where you've gone since, obviously, with your book, book company and all that. Yeah. Yeah, I think Bobby Bobby got a little scapegoated, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's easy for it to happen to singers because everybody's so jealous of the singer that it's easy for the singer to become a scapegoat. Um, that's one dynamic in bands. Lots of lots of other dynamics or combinations. But I think I think if you asked all four of us, you'd get four different answers about this. Although we love each other and get along super well and could talk about this together. But, uh, but this is one of the examples where we have differing, we, we actually like split up at a, at a bar in Amsterdam at the okay. beginning of our long European tour, at the end of which we recorded Hot Bodygram. But we, were, we, we actually split up at the beginning of that tour and then did all that. Um, but So but you we, broke up actually during the beginning of that European tour? Of a very long tour. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But I do think, I do think that there was this a feeling, yeah, like that the Bobby was being too, like maybe too didactic or too. Lyrics can simplify political issues, but the, but <laughs> anyone feeling that about Bobby was full of shit, <laughs> myself included. Uh, <laughs> and I, I that wasn't like a that wasn't necessarily like a big thing. Like oh, Bobby's being too political. But like I said, I think he was scapegoated, and I think that that might have been part of the 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 tone of it. Mm -hmm. And um, just I an just easy I, thing to dump the all the other stuff onto. Yeah, I, I, it, it, we were no longer teenagers, but it, to me, the whole thing feels very adolescent. Mm -hmm. And but you're still young men at that point. Yeah, and I think a lot of bands would, you know, when you get older, it becomes easier to keep bands together because you learn that relationships there always has to be give and take. And so we weren't quite old enough to, to know that. And it's really, I mean, Soulside's actually very active these days in. Mm -hmm. 2021 you know we put out in 2020 a new yeah. seven inch and we're writing songs actively now oh, um great. and cool and hear. um so it's very interesting the vibes that there were then and the vibes that were now but i think that the, all of us are really excited to be in a band with bobby where he's singing about social justice issues and it's 
funny to me to think that that would have made anyone uncomfortable, especially coming from such a politically righteous punk rock scene as sort of Washington, yeah. D.C. Oh, yeah. and, and, and to be clear, all of us were supportive of left-wing social justice. Mm -hmm. The issue, if, in, in as much as there was an issue with Bobby being overtly political, it wasn't so much that anyone like objected to, to the to, actual politics. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, if you listen in like girls against boys, mm -hmm. when Scott's singing, it's like, it's, you, there may be political stuff, but you're going to have to explore the poetry to find. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> find, yeah. Whereas Bobby was singing about apartheid in South Africa. We have to address this. We can't accept this. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, Oh, definitely. Definitely. So yeah, I can see that. It's interesting. Cause I mean, you guys, even Bobby's lyric writing, even though there's some very direct lines from Trigger through the end of, the, of your guys' first run, but there's also, they're kind of splintered through this very uh, abstracted filter as well. So, you know, it's not like MDC or a, uh, I don't know, in, a crass type of, you know, filter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Bobby was expressing himself poetically, and I don't know what the fuck <laughs> the rest of us were thinking. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, what? anything else that, uh, what else comes to mind when you think of, say, especially 87 into 88? Yeah, well, th th there was a lot of tours, bet yeah, but between starting in 87 and throughout 88, there was a lot of touring and that's what I really remember about 87. And I'm probably the same for all of us is the very first cross country tour that we did in, I think we started in September 87. In fact, Fugazi played their first, whatever night Fugazi played their very first show was something like September 7th, September, 19, yeah, 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 something like that. But that night we left, we, after the show, we got in our van and drove down to Atlanta, um, where where we be, where we began a, a national tour, and and it was a mind-bogglingly eye-opening tour, and also really difficult um, to be crammed in a van, and none of us had any money. We were uh, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch and dinner, like a lot, yeah. and. Um, playing shows kind of sporadically like it was maybe like a three-week tour across or maybe four weeks across the country and back with something like 11 or 13 shows and oh, wow. including like some canceled shows and mm -hmm. crazy crazy experiences i had never been west of kansas before so getting to see the american west and getting to see california was incredibly eye-opening yeah that that was a super exciting year for me 87 a lot of a lot of things that i had never done before yeah, um yeah. and as as well as suddenly everyone in like everyone was like nice to me yeah. <laughs> but people like in dc at shows and stuff who you know had spent the past two years not quite knowing who i was or caring suddenly i knew everybody mm -hmm. um, and that was an interesting thing that i learned as soon as i joined soul side is like oh yeah you're more popular when you play in a in a band yeah yeah that's funny. And that for that tour, that, was that the one with, uh, was that with Swizz? 
I don't think Swizz was on that tour. Okay. Um, that would have been 88. I see. Okay. Yeah, we, we in 88, I think, was probably the main Swizz and Swasside when Swizz, Swiss, American yeah. Standard, and Soulside toured together. Okay. In the 87 cross-country tour, Ian Sfinonius was our roadie. Mm. Um, and it was just us. We did do some shows. I might have been on that tour. We played with SNFU, although that might have been 88. But we played with some great bands. We did a, we did a couple of shows with Dag Nasty in California on that first. At, we played Gilman Street in Berkeley um, with Dag Nasty. And we played a massive, violent punk rock show with Dag Nasty in uh, San Diego. Oh, wow. What do you take away more than anything else from that experience, from that, that time period, around the time of recording that record of just starting to play with the band and you know where you were at uh, you know in your head and just literally in the scene and in your day-to-day at that point you know i was so busy learning and seeing things and also living a life of music you know full-time of course we still had to have jobs weren't earning a living with the music but it was it was it was a it was a full-time endeavor there's really not much for me i took so much away i don't really have i i be hard pressed to say what i took away i was just i was like a sponge yeah, yeah and it was incredibly exciting what looking back now i'm just so thankful um i'm really 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 thankful to bobby who um really changed my my life by by escorting me into the band and i feel like so much of what i do now wouldn't wouldn't have happened including book publishing had i not been influenced by bobby and so that's one of the things that i take away and of and big time scott and alexis as well have been and, and i've actually spent more time and done more music with scott and alexis but um but bobby was you know, we were we were super tight, and um, I I still to this day appreciate um, him him kind of like bringing me into punk rock.
if you're ready, we can do what we do. Ready here. and eager. Yeah, let's drop that needle. All right, so here we are with Discord number. What is it? <laughs> you know what's funny? The, 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 I'm looking at my spine and it's like so warm, but it looks like 29. 29, you're right. So here we are. Yeah, see, that's why we, that's why we need Jeff. So you, you're almost in the same spot that we are. We just are, as we record this today, where it went on Rev 30. Wow. Like they don't, they don't do half releases though, right? No. Okay. We've discoursed so many damn fractions. Um, that's crazy though. Yeah. So here we are, Discord 29. And as you just mentioned, Greg, I was going to bring up as well. There's a sandwich logo on the back, which is interesting because I never noticed that growing up and never thought of it as a sandwich release, but there it is. Maybe they're just giving uh, props, homage to, uh, you know, Amanda's label that helped get them started. Yeah, I I I, wonder, I do wonder too. Maybe maybe you know it's not like they signed a contract, but who knows? It could be something as simple as they originally agreed to do it with Sandwich, and then oh. Discord asked, and of course, yeah, you know they're going to go. Gonna with, gonna, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're going to go with Discord. No offense to Sandwich, but right. like you know, I mean, you're in this area, and Discord's asking you. You're not yep. going to say no, right? But um, how could you? I wonder. If is this is... considered an album or an EP? Is this That's an a good album? question. I always thought of it as an EP, but I think I've seen it listed as an album before. It's a, it's like a short album or a long EP. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'm, and I'm looking here because one of the things I noticed because I know, and I know you guys usually dissect everything. Oh so yeah. Not yeah. Gonna, but like the track listing on the back of the vinyl, it's like not in order. It doesn't yeah. have all the songs. I don't understand that either. Oh, you mean? Oh, you mean on the back of the okay well let's since since we started that way me and jeff did this with the last episode which is totally uncharacteristic we we tend to talk about the uh graphics and the layout and the covers at the end of the uh section but we're into it so let's let's yeah, go down that already, rabbit hole we already went down the rabbit hole so um does yours have what post paid do you have on the back i've got six dollars same yeah like you just said the titles on the back one are out of order and two it's not all of them right one two three you know what it's missing trigger forgiveness oh it's missing only trigger yeah yeah, it's just missing so i guess were they just like well we already used trigger on the (laughs) front front. (laughs) (laughs) they had to pay by the letter so they're just like "We're, we're not um yeah and it looks like uh because it has everything else but it's not in order because baby is the first song oh yeah and I mean, is a, is another digression on that subject. The listing on the record itself is off. Um, I mean, on the on the physical record, the circles and the way it's listed on Discogs, it has uh, problems faced when traveling as the last song instead of uh, forgiveness. Now I have to look. I have played the vinyl. <laughs> but I will admit, I'm I'm a person that usually uh, is listening on digital my iPhone while working or mm-hmm. on uh, uh, what do you call it in my car now with the soon come happy CD, which that's like Discord number I don't even know. It's 
Yeah, you're right. Side B has problems faced as the last track. I wonder what the story behind that is if they changed it so late in the game, the order that they didn't fix it on the record or what. I actually yeah. think as I listened, I was like, you know, I I think that song last actually would have been perfect. Like I would have preferred to have the way it's listed as the last song. I wonder if that was intended. Yeah. Could it be because they wanted to um, maybe the sides wouldn't have been as even or something? I, mm, I, I don't know. Because yeah. there's plenty of room. Because like you said, it's a it's a 12 inch, but it's not. You know, it's not like it was pushing an hour. No, no. These are the mysteries we have to uncover. <laughs> These are. And you know what's funny? I've noticed even with with where it went to, it's like, you'll bring this up and they'll just be like, I have no idea. They'll be like, it was a long time ago. I don't you know. know. Or they'll just be like, it was a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever. Like yeah, I had this come big, up like, with this grand theory. Of- yeah. Like you're like, uh, uh, and even just like, I remember like asking, uh, chaka on the burn episode you know the the first pressing of the burn <clears throat> of the burn seven inch had judged spelled wrong it shall be jugged <laughs> and i was like how did you feel like getting like dude we didn't even notice <laughs> that's hilarious you know what i mean like, we were just excited to have a record right, right. you know so it's like well so, yeah I, I do wonder and i i also think problems faced would be a cool last track yeah i i i had seen them play that last at some shows and it was pretty powerful way to end the show but yeah so you know cover there's there's the new member johnny temple on the cover which is pretty awesome yeah that's a i I was wondering it's a cool picture but that's pretty cool like hey you join the band and then you're on the album cover (laughs) right and the whole thing like especially the back cover even the front though it's it's got a very impressionistic, you know, kind of art, artsy looking uh, graphics, I think. Especially the back it looks like some French experimental movies frames or something. And then what's going on on the back? You can see the sun logo a little uh-huh. bit. It, it's this... obviously a, a, a live shot that you can't see anything else going on except for the, sh- for yeah. the shirt. I don't know. It works, though. Like it is. It, that's what's cool. Like it, it totally works. During the interview with Johnny, I didn't get it. I forgot to ask him about being on the cover of the record for the, you know, the first band he's playing first recording he's on. And all of a sudden he's on the cover. So I didn't get to ask him in the interview, but he, I wrote him and he, he told me, um, I, he said, I think it was Scott who designed the cover and it was sort of shocking in a pleasant way to see myself on the cover of a record. Yeah. Makes sense. Especially, I think he was like 17 or something at the time. Yeah, I would be stoked. Unless I'm missing it. There's not any credits about like the layout or anything. It's um, a, it yeah. just tells that it was recorded, you know, by uh, Eli and Ian. And uh, that's it. Yeah. Which, do you talk about the recording part yet? Or is that, I don't want to. Oh, we can. I mean, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh I guess that's something I should have said in the in the history is that it was recorded in December of eighty seven. Kind of intimated at it, but that's what happened. And it was in her ear with Ian as usual, engineered by Eli Janey. But yeah, I mean, what about the actual not just insert but uh record sleeve is 
like really well done and kind of has a connection to the back cover as far as the thanks section of the side where it's the, uh, like I said, looks like some kind of film projected on a wall with people's shadows on top of the film, which I'm assuming maybe is the band because in the picture, you still can't tell who they are, but yeah that's what i that's what i always thought at least and i know you said they used like tvs and stuff Mm -hmm. so it kind of makes sense i think what's cool is like this is one of those thanks lists you know and it's like the age-old thing we told us old guys talk about is before the internet man (laughs) you would get a thanks list but like and you would look at it and pour over it it, and that's how you but i mean man if this look at the names you get on here you get uh SNFU, mm-hmm. Kingface, Dag Nasty, Swizz, American Standard. I'm trying to look through real quick, but there's a, t- a verbal assault. Mm-hmm. You know, Fugazi, Scream, Ignition, Shudder to Think. Like, there's so many bands to check out uh, and people's yeah. names you would recognize too, you know? I like that they say they acknowledge that poster that was famous at the time, Mises a Pig. And then the next thing after it says Charlie isn't. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. And uh, Mark Anderson and Positive Force. Yeah. Necros. Karen. Yeah, Necros. They thank Chris Thompson, which is cool. You know, one of the that's the cool thing with DC too. Everybody, at least from as an outsider, you ha- I always had this vision of just like everybody's friends and everybody you know support but it, it does seem like i mean you can see why like they're producing each other's records and engineering them now is is this is a dumb question it's probably come up on your pod eli janney is that eddie janney's brother his younger brother yeah or it okay is. i was gonna say or like a cousin or something yeah no, so eli's the younger brother mm-hmm. eddie because i would always see the names and get them confused when i was a kid <laughs> i'd be like Wait, which one was in Rites of Spring? Right, right. But um, yeah, this, I mean, this, we've, we said it's not starter pack hardcore, but that thanks list, I mean, um, if you went, if you went to the record store and just a bought bucks those records and just yeah. bought records on this thanks list, you'd have a pretty nice collection. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. And then I wonder, that's another question I should have asked, like who that is on the, uh, on the lyric sheet side of the record. There's that po- picture of that guy with his yeah. head back wearing a hat. Yeah, I wonder. There's a quote there. Oh, yeah. Elridge El- Cleaver quote, uh, revolution, you know, uh, Black Panther revolutionary guy. And uh, it kind of goes with the, the theme of the record, just about the time is now. You know, the time is always right now to not to wait around. The revolution is here. We got to get this going and it's already started and again this the layout the subject matter this could have been on ebullition records in 1993 mm-hmm. and no one would have bat an eye and this is like six years or five years before that yeah. that's why i said i really see that the the byline from this to mm-hmm. like the post-hardcore yeah and emo yeah. stuff like the poly the 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 political bent to it, the revolutionary stuff, but even like we said, musically, the grooves. Oh yeah. That um, kind of that kind of guitar attack that using noise and sound and harmonics and stray little 
feedback and bins as much as the actual chords, you know, that's yeah. something. And using space. They use a lot of space. They do. Like, like, like it's not just like riffs upon riffs. Like there's, there's a lot of groove, uh, the bass and the drums locking in. Yeah. What, what a rhythm section. Like, yeah. Alexis was really good before this on the records, but in my opinion, he kind of overplayed a bit. Like on this record on, he just really finds his, his, as you said, groove, the tempos, the tempo changes, the just him and Johnny together just fit like a glove. They're so perfect. And that that's one thing I remember live too, is that they were one of those first bands to start using uh, that kind of drum beat with the doing a lot of using the hi-hat a lot, like doing that, like kind of u2e kind of like yeah i it's it's nuts all these bands i mean all these bands that we love from this whole scene the individual players are so important like it's like it's like like this band has no weak link oh for sure not there's no there's no weak link You've got because um, I'm I'm gonna assume Bobby writes the lyrics. You've got excellent lyrics, great mm-hmm. delivery. He can he can you know shout like he does oh, yeah. on you know. We'll talk about the tracks, but he he also can get, get he, some he melodic sings. sing. Yeah, his sense of delivering a hook or a chorus is like so good. He had so it very soulful. early on. Yeah, uh, Scott's guitar playing is super innovative and cool. Yeah, um, yeah, he went from like being a. Said, he went from being an interesting, pretty good guitarist to being like, wow, you know, defining a whole territory of mu- music. And if we're doing the math, what are these guys like 19 when they recorded this? Like that is mind blowing right. to me. Yep. 19 yep. or 20. Like uh, I didn't do maybe when I was... 20. I think they're about it, about 18 or 19. <laughs> yeah, like when I was 20, I wasn't writing songs half as good as these well, and that, but that goes to as well to the to the area, to being involved t- intimately with that scene, with you know Bobby's brother being in the first band ever in the DC scene, and also just their connection to all the other bands. Yeah. So you saying that brought up a thought to me that it's come up a lot for me lately, especially doing the the book club where we're going through the early history and all that. You know, so bands like minor threat have talked about both seeing the bad brains and also having them share practice space etc like really force them to want to up their game and want to you know be on a level that's at least not embarrassing next to something like the bad brains and then well there's that whole story about you know them sharing the place and thinking their equipment sucks. Oh, right, Daryl right. picks up Ian's bass and he's just like, just sounds sounds like the bad brain. You're, like, you're <laughs> yeah. like, oh, it's not the equipment, it's me. <laughs> yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, and so and and so then and then there's after that, other bands are, you know, in the scene are like, oh shit, you know, Jeff Nelson and and the whole band of of Minor Threat. We can't just kind of half-ass it. We got to bring we got to up our game too and and so on down the line. So, you know, that kind of helps explain a little bit. I mean, of course there's some insanely talented people, lots of them in the DC gene pool, but having all these bands that are top notch, 
just world changing players like in your backyard is going to make you want to take some time with what you're doing. Yeah. And all these bands, I mean, we can name like the players. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure it's, I mean, I'm thinking it's it's really the same thing with, you know, the rev band, the early rev bands, like, because everybody has a personality, whether it's, an actual just personality, mm-hmm. like somebody that's like a crazy, you know, front man with a lot, you know, like, yeah. you know, like rabies from Warzone because he's <laughs> just larger than life, yeah, but yeah. also just a musical personality, you yeah. know, and the way they play their instrument. And, and I was just thinking about soul side and thinking like four people that good that found each other and did a band. Yeah. That's why, even though they hadn't played for years, why they can get back together and not only write new music, which they did, which like we talked about before we recorded, like their new stuff's great. Oh yeah. But they play live and they're locked in. You know, I was floored when, when my band easy creatures got to open for them and they just fucking crushed it. They brought it. Like they were just so good and uh, inspiring. So I can only imagine too, like being a young kid and seeing them. Yeah, uh, yeah, know, would have been amazing. Oh, definitely. That's great that you got to play with them. I never got to play with them. I got to play some amazing bands, but I played with a couple of Bobby Slater bands. But yes. Rain like the Sound of Trains. Was yeah, it? or Seven. Rain like the Sound of Trains and uh, Holy shit! Why am I forgetting the one? Seven right boots. Before... Seven league. Seven league boots. Seven league boots. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, like like I said on the, I think I said it one other time on the show, but I was super proud when when the Seven League Boot CD came out and Bobby's wearing a my band my old band's T-shirt on the picture in the middle of it. I was like, yeah, <laughs> you should be proud. That's cool. Yeah, it was awesome. I, I I geek out, dude. I geek out about stuff like that, you know, with with doing these podcasts and and getting feedback from. Mm-hmm these people that were literally like legendary not cool to say i guess but they're like heroes man oh, yeah. like yeah, like when you're like a kid like, yeah, yeah you were like these guys are cool and yeah like you know when we played with soul side having bobby be like guys were really good That's like cool. when we we opened the show like i love that that playing yeah. with them i mean and my other band one up we played a lot more shows than easy creatures but playing with soul side is like a top five Mm. musical thing that i've i've that's done cool. that's awesome. and then probably the other four were stuff with with one up but like uh-huh. soul side was definitely like one on the a notch on the belt so to speak oh definitely man that's super cool yeah so so Just put the needle to, down yeah it's, <laughs> the needle's been hovering for a yeah, while we've, we've left the record <laughs> spinning for a while <laughs> so all right put it down on baby it, it starts out with that kind of martial type drumming like a lot on this record for some reason, besides the kind of heavy grooves that that Alexis gets does, he kind of there's parts that that sound kind of militant to me, like in a way of uh, you know, like the clash. But yeah, no, it does. It starts right off of that the yeah. military style drums. Yeah, and it it's so confident and like the guitars come in all slashing and like all of a sudden Scott's got his fully realized new approach to playing guitar which as he said 
in our last interview was influenced by things like industrial music, which is really interesting and makes sense. Like, it I does. Don't, I don't love a lot of industrial, but I can totally see what he's saying with the textured kind of noisy angular type of stuff going on were they did it come up i don't think it came up in your talk but i also wondered when you're talking about having the tvs and stuff on stage Uh there had to be some maybe even like hip-hop influence oh yeah because you got to think around that era you had so much of the like the classic um public enemy were huge right like the politically the ones that actually had you know stuff to say yeah. Um, I'm sure there was that influence and yeah, the, Johnny Temple brings that up in the interview for that episode. Oh, I can't wait to hear it because yeah. full disclosure, I, I haven't heard the interview. <laughs> so I'm as excited <laughs> as everybody else. So you're like, um, the, you're like, you're fitting into the co-host chair. Well then, because Jeff makes a point of always. I know. I know. I, <laughs> um, yeah. My notes for baby. I literally uh-huh. just wrote the soul side formula all laid out. Like yeah. that's like, it's got, everything like you said it's got the, the swing and the you know, the drums and the rhythm section uh great lyrics oh yeah the lyrics are awesome you know and it's mid-tempo but then it speeds up mm-hmm. which know, they kind of do a couple times on this record yeah they do yeah that's that's exactly what i what I, what i wrote as well it's like a great opening track because it it gives you it it, it has the seed of everything else that comes with the rest of the record it's the introduction formula that they repeat in different ways different expressions throughout the rest of it and yeah the lyrics to me i took it as like an invitation to look within you know because he's talking about reflection and to not just point fingers outward to uh you know see those reflections as reflections of that kind of sickness corruption greed selfishness etc that's out in the world but where is it in you what do you have to heal within as well as without yeah uh, and it's it's not many lyrics yeah which a lot of these are are very sparse lyrically economical yeah yeah but like good word it 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 works like i'm really drawn to the to these the lyrics on this record a lot yeah Um, yeah absolutely and and well on all the soul side stuff really yeah well and especially this one for me and there's like this is where bobby starts coming into his own with a lot of that where it's it gets kind of abstract but you can tell what he's singing about and there's certain phrases within each song like a certain phrase will just really boom pop out neon letters and like stick in your brain yeah uh, agreed yeah and it's like you know i the song kind of has that kind of static groove for the first part of it then it a lot of tension then the breaks open into that big chorus you know with the cool backups but they're not using backups the way other band punk bands would it's like no. totally different for the time yeah i think it's a great opening track next is the title track yeah trigger what a song and why don't you start us out on it so this is another one that's pretty like Mm mid-tempo uh but it has that that groove man and like i said that's so good too this one is is such a testament to that rhythm section um and like but then you have you know the vocals are great 
and also like the stuff Scott's doing on the yeah. guitar. Yeah, he doesn't really like play chords for most of the verse, which is awesome. What it's funny think? that you mentioned like you too, because it's like it's sort of like he uses his guitar. Oh, I'm not really a musician. Uh-huh. I play a little guitar, but like you don't play a big guitar. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, play, I play a ukulele. <laughs> uh, like he, um, a lot of times he'll use his guitar sort of like the same way, like the Edge does. Yeah, like it's almost like an atmospheric. Which again, I think that plays into the whole thing about uh, that we you talked about earlier with the industrial and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's cool. It works. Which, which also in a different way brings up the other influence that's big for these guys, which is reggae. And, you know, not that they sound like a reggae band at all, but they were all into reggae. And what guitar does in reggae is very sparse and very kind of stabbing and stuff. Right. It's not just like riffs. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, the, ba- the this great, great song. And yeah, I, I can hear a little bit of the dub. Uh-huh. One thing I I don't know why, like, and I hope I don't offend Bobby by saying it, but like I always kind of chuckle at the intro where it's like that little bass harmonic or something just sounds like he's getting ready to play the song and it's as if a band's tuning up and Bobby's gives this like impassioned, like, yeah, like right on where (laughs) but it's like if he did a little little further into the song would make more sense, but it was like it's like people at uh, Grateful Dead shows that'll dance to the band tuning or something. <laughs> but yeah, it's such a good song. Uh, the, you know, this was one of the first songs that when I saw them live and, and they had some of the new songs like this one, like this song uh, etched in my memory, like one of those first kind of hair on your arm standing up songs of like, fuck, that's, that's a timeless song right there. It's five minutes long. Is it five minutes? I had no Yeah, which is like, you know, as like young, young me, you know, what I wanted everything to be 45 seconds, <laughs> my, my Discord stuff. Yeah. I do wonder if I would have been like, oh, five minute song? Forget this. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's also, it doesn't seem like five minutes. It it's... doesn't. Well, because a lot of these songs, it goes through so many different musical moods within the song. Like it's not put together like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge out. Nah. It's like so many different areas within the song it's one of the first songs to kind of not in discord because there was beef eater of course but one of the first uh younger bands to kind of talk about vegetarianism in a song like this is the first one on here to do that and for trigger yeah, yeah. or is it the, um for for trigger and for uh, name in mind I was going to say name in mind. I, I, I see that. Yeah, because trigger. Yeah, because it, it says uh, whether it's, and, and see, it's not only that, it's straight edge, ve- straight edge ve- vegetarian before, oh, I see it before right youth there. of today says it. Yes. Whether this, it's the cigarette is... in your hand or the death of the animal in demand. What if you were in demand? Yeah, no, I see that. Because I, I see it in name, uh, name mind. Yeah, name in um, mind has that great line. You see food, I see murder, blood on your plate. Yeah, what a what a uh, powerful yeah. line. Yeah, yeah. So it made sense that they were down with you for today, guys. True. Yeah. Play with them. I, I actually, I had asked um, Porcel when we talked to him 
uh, about, and he, he said, he has like nice memories. He's like, Oh yeah, they were great guys. And he said like, um, I remember he said that they, I think he said they played with lunch meat. Really? Um, I'm not certain, but like, yeah, you read these lyrics and it just totally makes sense that they'd be playing the shows with, you know, youth of today and gorilla biscuits and Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, yeah, that, uh, just it all comes down to the bass this whole album for me it just blows me away like that this is the first time that johnny's recorded and he's just doing so much cool stuff there's that dead stop in the middle of the song where which it does again on another song which we'll get to but like other than fugazi which hadn't come out yet that first record like bands weren't doing that where everything stops and then the band comes back in and does the whole a whole nother part of the song and you know lyrically I, you know I, I i love the just the title which is perfect for the record too but just trigger that feeling of pulling the trigger on on your anger and having to figure out where to aim it how to utilize it how to express it in a creative way instead of just blindly or whatever yeah to me like i like the first record but to me, like the soul the first LP, yeah, uh-huh. less deep. Yeah. But when I think soul side, it's this record on oh, for yeah. me. Like, like that's. I feel like they came into their own yep. on this one. Yeah, I feel like the first record was good. It was fun and and got some good songs, but it's a uh, it's like the appetizer, the intro to to when they really come into their own like you said on this i thought you were gonna say it's like appetite for destruction (laughs) and i was like dude appetite for destruction's straight fucking fire oh man okay (laughs) you remind you're you remind me of ben now we could go just go in a whole different direction here well no well on guns and roses 1.5 <laughs> they're, 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 they're in between funk i mean duff mckagan was in the farts dude. he was he was but um yeah no uh it's and it's, uh, and what's his name from replacements ends up playing bass with him tommy stinson tommy stinson yeah that's right yeah yeah like to me this is the this is the first realized soul side release yeah i agree i agree and then we get to the uh the song that I won't give away my favorite track on the record, but for side one, especially name in mind, this song just blows me away. Each time I hear it, it's hard to, it was hard to actually the whole record was hard for me to uh, write notes about for this episode because it's so ingrained in me. And each time I hear it, I just go to that place that, that it hits me and that it hit me. when I first heard it as a teenager, it's hard to kind of stand back from that and be like, no, wait, let's let's actually sit down and pull this apart and and see how it works. But yeah, this song, so good. I yeah, and two minutes in when it hits that, uh, you know, the you see money, I see slavery yeah. part, and that that bass, the, yep. the high bass notes. Yep. Um, you know that he's playing almost like a like like Peter Hook. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. You know, with where the bass is real high or like um yeah the high melodic bass plan same with Ned's atomic dustbin it's like ned's atomic dustbin oh shit you're bringing that up that's uh, okay this is a good spot to bring up for me then 
I misspoke. You didn't hear last episode that petrol motion came up because Fire Party played some shows with them overseas. And with an exatomic dustbin? No, with that petrol motion. Oh. And I I and my brain have those two bands mixed up that petrol motion and Ned's atomic dustbin. So I was like, Oh yeah, they had two bass players, blah, blah, blah. And Ben corrected me and said, no, that's Ned's atomic dustbin. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I know we, this is going off the rails, but Ned's atomic dustbin though, they, they like the, the part in this song, you know, like I said, the, the change about two minutes in where yeah. the, you see money, I see slavery, that right. bass, like they would, do that kind of thing. Now, mm-hmm. Ned's is after this. So maybe you listen to Soul Side. I know they had a lot of um mm-hmm. like hardcore energy to them. Yeah. Um, and you know, they were punk maybe. kids from England. So you know I had know. I I had <laughs> you never know. I'd love to ask them, but that bass, they would do that because they had the two bass players. So one could play the low notes and then one could do one the, would be doing the high the high busy low. stuff. Um, yeah. but yeah, this song is just a Oh, it's a beast, man. Uh, yeah. it, it's and I I stand by. It's one of my all-time favorite bass lines. It's just I always play this bass line when I pick up my bass. It's just fun and it's so driving. I feel like this is like a perfect song. You know, Scott's playing is powerful and barely contained. It's you know, I don't know. It's it's hooky too. It does, especially speaking of Peter part, Hook. I know. <laughs> <laughs> especially the part you just mentioned the uh blood on your plate part it's like so catchy and but then what's crazy is it has that catchy part and uh-huh. then it has the look wait wait wait, yes. wait look part so it's like another they're just like fuck it we're gonna give you two really catchy parts <laughs> for the price of th- one exactly we're gonna throw two or three songs into one and and yeah that look 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 wait part it's so great because they do it and then they speed up the music underneath it and like keep doing it over top of the faster part with with other things going on it's so cool yeah and i even wrote like the last note i wrote on this was a, that it almost feels like a <laughs> i put it almost feels like a whole record condensed into one song the way that like the who would do a rock opera or do a, a quick These little like vi- vignette vignettes or whatever yeah, they yeah. call them right like yeah it's what a song though like oh. we said this is a, i mean this is that's a perfect song like that 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 is a perfect punk hardcore song yeah. um there's you know it sounds great the, the the playing is great the lyrics are great you can't there's nothing you can complain it's a perfect 10 yeah yeah i 100 percent agree so then oh that does problems faced yeah right which yeah. ends side one not side two you're right. Problems faced when traveling. This song, another man, what a one home run after another on this record so far. This song reminded me of, I don't know, it, it reminded me in spirit of like something uh, Rites of Spring would do energy and, and feel wise, the way the music just goes into overdrive, then they all drop out and it kind of falls apart. And it's this whole, you know, that whole last section where it's just this naked vocal and uh, drum part of saying, got my hands up to the world, come and take what you want. I won't do anything. Such a powerful, powerful song and powerful sentiment. Yeah, a little, I guess now that I'm, you mentioned that, but also uh, 
the rights of spring out here, but gray matter a little bit, like the take it back. Oh, take it back your sure. stuff. Like, yeah, like it I has that, that feel that that got my hands up to the world. I mean, that's a hook. It is. You hear it's... that and you're like, <laughs> I'm hooked, man. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's not an obvious thing. It's, it's sentiment wise. It's like the song unravels and it goes into that part. And it's to my mind, it feels like he's saying, you know, that talk about the strength of vulnerability, the strength of being not attached of non-attachment of, you know, you can take anything away from me. You still haven't taken away my, who I am, what I am. Yeah. It's very like, it has like, a, um, really like anti-materialism feel to it. Yeah. It's, it's like vaguely spiritual almost without yeah. being dogmatic or yeah, well, without or being attached to any sort of yeah. direct line of spiritual. Yeah, definitely. And it's like a little, you know, it's, um, it's different than the usual, like you try to take from me and I'm not going to like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, right, right. dude, take I it. For an you eye can't, or whatever. Yeah. Like yeah. take it, man. It doesn't matter. I won't do yes. anything. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So, and like I said, what I feel like that would have been such a insanely strong sentiment and song to end the record with the way it is listed on the, what do you call those? The uh, labels, the center labels. labels. Yeah. On the labels. Yeah. But yep. it's the end of side A. These are these this are A is, and yep. B. They're not one and two. I saw on the thing. Yep. Um, so we flip it over, and uh, we've got the cover of the cover, in a way, the cover of the Bob Marley cover of a uh, speech by Holly Selassie. Yes, these the Discord bands. I have to say, are really good at choosing cover songs that fit the feel of the record mm. and don't throw it off and make it feel weird or sandwiched in or thrown in. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this song is no exception. Like it just, it fits when I was young, I probably wouldn't have known. I no, I, I wouldn't have known that it was a cover. Like I would have just thought like it's another song. It's, it's great. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Cause it, I was really familiar with the uh, original when when it came out so it took me aback a little just a little because it's such a reworking but it, it grew on me so much that you know what they do musically instead of trying to play a reggae or distorted reggae song like the way they approach it this is where i feel like the uh the industrial thing comes in as well that it's very kind of tribal industrial type of vibe going on I think it's great. And yeah, they make I, it sound like soul side. They do. Although I, I've got to say, I mean, I love Bobby and I love his vocals, but I feel like he feels, I wouldn't say tentative, but he doesn't feel as confident on this as he would later on, on later reggae songs, or as opposed to one of his own, maybe he had too much, you know, this is all my opinion and conjecture, but maybe he had, too much reverence for the original and you know to pull off you know fully full throat seeing it i don't know yeah i i wonder as someone who's sang in bands it sometimes can be tough i think to to honor the original and put your spin on it too mm -hmm. and you know when you're not when you're young 
I think that maybe he was just yeah, a little more. Cool. I mean, I don't hear it. I think it sounds fine, but, but I think his voice sounds even stronger now. Like when oh, yeah. you hear like that, that um, the newest seven inch they did, yeah. like he sounds like a oh, pro, so, you know so what I mean? So, skin, so, yeah. so I see what you mean, but, but I think this is probably one of the earliest tracks where he did like that. So I think he was maybe just like finding his footing yeah, yeah. Um, in how to, how to be, how you to know, cross Bobby Sullivan worlds. Yeah. But, and, and still sound like, you know, how to sound like him basically to be able to do the, the screamy stuff, but also the melodic. True. True. They would open, open shows with this song a lot around this time. And it was always a really cool kind of dramatic way to open a show. It's a cool way to um, open the side. I think the side I do of the too. record. And, and it's, it's perfectly placed at the beginning of side two. If they open the whole record with it, it would be a little, I don't know. It wouldn't be bad, but it'd be just, it wouldn't feel as natural as it does right here. I think. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a side, placed. it's a side two opener for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get to, Oh wait, one more oh, thing I wanted to add. Sure. This is sort of unique in what we've what what we what you guys have talked about it's a cover that's actually on the streaming services that's the that's the oh, note i had it, it, it is it is not only on the spotify for trigger uh the trigger and bass 103 but it's also on the soon come happy oh cool uh, version so that's pretty cool so it's not all messed up like uh the ignition yeah, right. services and the jaw box grip or gripe 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 mm-hmm. or grip i don't know <laughs> I never knew because gripe is one p yeah anyway be one. yeah 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 <laughs> so it, it was like the covers on there which is cool yeah that is um, uh, i'm surprised then we get into kttk stands for neil to the king this one had a, a Swizz vibe to it. That's what my notes say. It reminded me of Interesting. Swizz. Interesting. And I'm not, I'm not saying that they were like, we want to write a song. It just yeah, yeah. reminded me of Swizz. Like, like uh, it had like, it was a little faster. Um, right. And just had that feel to me. And had that kind of attack that Jason Farrell would have on his guitar in a way. I could see that. This is a spot where I could talk about a quote from uh, our Bible, Dance of Days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so in that book, it says <laughs> in the summer of 87, the members of Soulside decide to quit college and be full time musicians. Bobby Sullivan later recalled the energy of the time. Revolution summer could have happened for three years or more. But all of a sudden, the people in the limelight called it quits and everyone followed them. I really resented that. So I wrote the words, you say the revolution's over. The revolution has just begun. That's sick. Yeah. So good. What a <laughs> like, great line. It is. And like that, this song is a ripper. It is. And it's, it's definitely the most hardcore, like the most kind of straightforward hardcore, but it's still not like straightforward. No. Like it's not like. Cause the bass um, is really jazzy and doing and, and, the, kind of and the guitar, the stuff he's doing on guitar. And yep. so it's like as straightforward as you're going to get from right you know, this iteration of soul side and I'm, I'm here for it, man. Yeah. It's great. It's so good. Yeah. Again, like 
Scott is playing fast and hard, but it's very dissonant type of chords. It's not straight bar chords. And, and the, here's that second song where it stops in the middle of the song. And they have that. I love that KTTK part two. Yeah. <laughs> but I like, like you said, the lyrics, like it, and especially hearing that quote, it really does capture because we've all been there. I think when we're in bands, you're young and you're hungry. And it's like, you see mm -hmm. those who came before you kind of dying out and giving up. Yeah. And this is like, you know, him being like, yo, the revolution's not over. Like we're, we're here. We're carrying the torch. Yeah, absolutely. Those lines totally make the whole song. I feel like, yeah, it's, it, now I look at my notes as well. You mentioned Swizz and this makes sense because what I wrote is like there's a part part way through that, you know, I'm not going to embarrass myself and sing the music, but the, uh, or I will and I will take it out. That like, that was the part where I was definitely like, I mean, I can if, hear they, if they recorded this music and Bobby didn't sing on it yet, Sean... Oh yeah, Brown could have his voice. Yeah, would've... sung on this, and it, it would have been cool. I would love to hear. I would love to hear him do a version of this song. Yeah, that'd have been cool. Well, and so what I wrote totally fits with what you said about Swizz. I just wrote partway through this the part that's tight and sounds like a tight kind of minor threat slash ACDC part, which throws that's those two Swizz. together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and and I think that um. Swizz too was another one from this era. Everything I've read about them seems like, you know, at, at this time, you got to look at in context, you know, this is coming from somebody, there's going to probably be people that will take umbrage or say what I'm saying is wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. In 1987, I was six years old. So I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't live in DC. But it seemed like that whole the whole era like like it says in dance of days revolution summer was over and people were kind of moving on and doing whatever whether that meant getting out of music or whether it meant playing you know really slower more you know not aggressive not stuff urgent sounding. so then you had these this younger kids and they're only younger by a couple of years right you know it's not like they're 20 years younger but they have that fire in them and it produced some great stuff. Cause you had soul side and you had Swizz cause Swizz I know was the same thing. It was like, they still wanted to play like hardcore, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, they didn't want Swizz ignition. Were they no, they all in that or they're not. Well, I mean, because, you know, Alec and Chris had been and Dante for that matter, played in some of the very first. Yeah, that's true. They were, old, they were, even though I don't want to say were, older, they were veteran, more veterans. Yeah, yeah. Because they'd been, they were known Doing it since they were tiny kids. So who uh, else would you say? Soulside, Swizz. I would say just in that crop wise would be Nation of Ulysses as well, even though sound wise is different. Yeah, but yeah, um, like younger kids kind of carrying the torch. Yeah, we might do for Patreon at some point a Swizz episode, but since we haven't talked about them at all yet. You know, I'll just mention like, yeah, they were definitely mentioning being on fire. Like that's their, that was their vibe. And interestingly, the connection I could put, like they played with a lot of those rev bands as well. 
And they were the only DC band that I remember having not tons of merch, but having merch and having all of a sudden going to to show and seeing all these people with Swizz logos on the back of their jackets and stuff. Like there was like a whole, they kind of had a whole branding kind of thing going on. Yeah. Which is very un DC. Right. Like exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like they were more, but, but it's very like, you know, I mean, hell you go to see uh, some of these rev bands that still play now. And they got like six t-shirt designs right. and, yep. um, but uh, yeah, like, so I think this is an exciting time because you have this crop of bands that are still moving forward and, and have something to say. Oh, for sure. And coming into their own too, you know, not just kind of being young and interesting. Yeah. Like it's, it's not like they sound like, I mean, yeah, like you said, there's a part that sounds like minor threat, but they don't sound like minor threat. No, like, not at all. This, yeah. There's no band like on the flex your head, no band sounds like soul side. <laughs> true, you know what I mean? True. Good point. Yep. So then we get to pocket hurts. Um, I just have, this is another one. It's like more of that mid tempo. Like they're, they're allowing the space and, you know, room to breathe, mm-hmm. but there's the, there's the lyrics that still like hit, like, you know, how he says stand in the fucking line. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, like, you can really hear the uh, sincerity in, in the vocals. Yeah. Oh, that's well put. You know, I wrote the same thing, like use of space. Like there's a lot of space in this song and it's kind of poetic the way they, you know, not just the lyrics, but the way everything's pieced together, like the drums having that rolling stuttering beat going on throughout the guitar is just kind of layered over top it's all kind of atmospheric more than anything else. And the way Bobby sings the lines kind of glide along the top of all that while sounding, like you said, like impassioned, but without being like in your face, like the whole song feels like a, has this kind of haiku like vibe to it to me. Yeah. And like, he's not trying to steal the show almost, you know what I mean? Like he's not like, sometimes I think there'll be a lot of space and the vocalist will try to like fill all this space or do something. <laughs> and it's like, they're all working together yes, on, on the yes. track. And uh, that's another thing I wrote that it's feels like they're all part of this large organic being that's kind of rolling along, moving along on its own. And they're just elements of this bigger thing. And they, uh Yeah. They're, they're all they're, all they're playing on that song is very humble is a weird word but uh understated exactly it's like they're they're really i think um working together as a band mm-hmm. to serve the song yeah it, it feels like uh the, this song more than even a lot of the others or there's elements in some of the others but this song makes me think oh, okay here's a little preview of what's coming on on the next lp yeah definitely then we get to the last uh proper song on the record forgiveness uh this is a good ending song too though it is um, you know like even though maybe we would have liked it to end with problems you know, like it, like the Discogs or like the label, <clears throat> not Discogs, the label, the label itself. Yeah. But uh, this is good. That whole like the imitation 
lyric hook is cool. And then there's that, but then there's also like that instrumental bit at the end, right? Is that, yeah, is I that on like the vinyl? I haven't, I, I haven't is. played the vinyl in a while. It is. <laughs> like, it's I've, not listed it, as a separate thing, whereas now right. it's listed as a Scott's instrumental or something, but yeah. it was just kind of tacked on without a announcement on the record, which is cool. I think it puts you in this other, you know, it kind of, if the first song was a great introduction into the, what was coming, this glides you out of the music. Yeah, it's like a cool exit piece. Yeah. Yeah. Exit piece. Exactly. But, you know, getting back to forgiveness real quick, it's a pretty good last song. I feel like, but I honestly, I, I the, where, where it's listed as being supposedly, you know, on the record and, on Discogs, I feel like would have been even more perfect, like the end of side one versus side two, something like that. But it's fine. And I, what I like to, I, I really like Johnny's little bass thing that he does in between parts. He has this like really cool, quick little line that's, you know, again, like you would say, uh, Peter Hook esque or. Yeah, like know. where the where the notes, you know, because I know the whole thing with why Peter Hook played that way is because he couldn't hear. So he's like, well, I'm going to play these higher notes and right. actually hear Good it over the guitar. Stuff. And then, you know, that was the same thing with, we said, like Ned's Atomic Dustbin mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the higher octave bass. And there's a lot of it on this record. Yeah, I mean, um, same with Right to Spring again, you know, a band that yeah. has a lot of high melodic bass. As I've said before, I'm here for it. I like it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, these lyrics are perhaps even the most abstract of the whole record, I feel like. And yeah, I was looking at them and I'm like trying, I'm, I'm not, so I, I appreciate good lyrics. I'm not, it's funny because, you know, usually when I do a band, I sing, <laughs> sing? and write the lyrics. <laughs> uh-huh. But like, sometimes it'll take me a long time to realize just how good a lyric is if that makes sense yeah yeah, like sometimes it'll like really and i'll be like oh that's like that's really insightful and good so (laughs) but i was looking at these and i'm like yeah it's very abstract Mm -hmm. i I like the first line more than any of the others but what's the first line forgiveness speaks the truth okay but then it says honesty plays the game which i don't know so Double Cross Webzine, which uh-huh. was done by uh, Tim McMahon uh, from Mouthpiece yeah. and uh, you know a bunch of other great hardcore bands. They did a piece on where Bobby broke down all the lyrics to Hot Body Gram. Oh, really? So Ooh, um, I have to make sure you mm-hmm. find that it's in the archive <laughs> somewhere. But uh, you'll you'll definitely want to use that for that episode. Yeah, that's but great. I would. I would love if to have a breakdown of of this one because there are some where I'm like, oh, like you know, what, what's going on here? Yeah, I mean that that's pretty much all I have to say about that song. To be honest with you, I like it. It, it it's all a piece with the uh, full record. Everything sounds like it fits together on this record. It does. Yeah. I mean, this is this is an essential record. Um, even though like we, we joked about it not being like starter pack to yeah. me, this is, if you are a fan of discord yeah. and DC stuff and you don't have this record. Yeah. It's a cornerstone. 
You're a poser. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Throwing it down. No, I'm just, but uh, <laughs> I, I've been talking to too many New York people, maybe. Not I know. know. <laughs> um, but for real, like, and there is a, um, and I think it's like Discord 179 or something. I looked right before this, so forgive me if I'm wrong. But you can still, or at least as of semi-recently, you could still get uh, a version of this record. Oh, a physical um, version of the of the vinyl of Trigger, yeah. There, oh. there it's the Trigger, but it also has the uh, bass seven inch. Uh-huh. Um, so you'll be able to do another episode on on this release. I know that'll be cool. Yeah, now I'm like I'm actually I'm looking right now. It's, I wonder if it's still in print, and it's not. Yeah, it <laughs> but it's on all the stream. <laughs> it's on all the streaming. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the, they had it on, it was, it is discord 179 trigger mm-hmm. and base 103 and, uh, has updated artwork from Jason Farrell of Swizz yep. among other things. And, um, and he's done like the graphics for, I can't even count how many discord records. Yeah. And, uh, I actually, you know, I'll say, I'm not going to say I like it better but I really like the reimagined art that they did for that one. Huh. I haven't um, really paid it, it like attention. pops. So it has, uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because you're going to be talking about it in like five years when you get exactly. to it. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, it, they use the sun logo uh-huh. and then triggers like still in red and it still has Johnny on it. But, oh, um, but the, it, but the logo is all bright, right? Yeah, so it just kind of pops a little, but yeah. I love, you know, the the completest in me. I had to have both versions anyway, so <laughs> I don't really even need to pick a, a version that I prefer. I will say, for listening purposes, yeah, the newer one's nice because you get that great, great, great seven inch uh, oh. tacked on. Yeah, yeah. So when you go on Spotify, you get to True. hear it, and if you play the vinyl, uh, I'm but, curious of. You know they've remastered everything. I'm curious that I don't own the re- the reissue on vinyl. I wonder how the sound is comparatively to. It the- sounds good. I mean, that was the first one I had. I I got this copy a while back on Discogs, the okay. the actual Discord yeah. 29 that we were talking about. But um, you know, in 2014 when they did that trigger with bass on yellow vinyl, it looks cool. It sounds really good. Yeah. Discord just. Discord do just a does job. a really great job. Like, there's the level of care. Yeah. Like, I don't even buy CDs anymore, but I still get the Discord like collections and play them in the car yeah, yeah. because they have like, you know, the booklets. Like, it's to me that set the standard for like what a discography CD should be. Oh yeah, and I mean, I I hadn't gotten them for a while. My friend gave me a couple, and I was like, oh shit, this one's got a couple extra songs or this or that that weren't on anything, you know? Yeah. And it, yeah, Demo it has tracks. like, they'll throw in like comp tracks yeah. and whatever. And it's just, it's cool. They do, they do a, a great job. Um, and uh, in listening to this, I hope that soul side do another record. Not all, not all bands can get back and, and do can it. Get away with it. Yeah. But, but they can, you know, just, just like, uh, you know, like Dag Nasty or whatever, like mm-hmm. for some reason, something about DC, <laughs> they, they, I feel like they, they pull it off. True. Uh, DC guys know how to do it. 
putting DC back on the map again. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently they are, they have been writing songs and stuff. So we'll see. Good. That makes me very, very happy. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I would love to see them again. Absolutely. Uh, live. And, yeah. And so is it time to put the record back in its sleeve? Yeah. And I always, I always laugh because when you guys put them back, I'm like, I'm like, well, I'm putting it back next to my other soul side records. But are you talking about who, what bands are next? Cause I'm like, if well, you want to know where I'm filing this, I'm filing it next to less deep. And then before the reissue that's and hot body, but no, that's um, a good point. But well, I always negate the other record by releases. the same band. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So where's yours going back to? So mine lives, I don't know. I can't even count how many, a couple hundred of my records are still in a storage somewhere. So, I keep thinking like, oh, I've got that record and I go and look and I don't. So it would be next to some Soul Asylum records, but I don't have any on hand, it looks like. So on one side is Sonic Youth's sister. Is that the uh, a repressing? It is. It is. I recently procured, because mm-hmm. um, when I get on these kicks, my wallet and Discogs <laughs> work together as a team. I got a um, the NSST version of that where it was half censored. Huh. This is a little off topic, but yeah. hey, Sonic Youth, yeah. noisy guitars. Soulside have some noisy guitars. It all fits. Oh yeah, um, I saw I saw Sonic Youth in DC many times. Sonic Pegasi yeah. once. Um, but it has SST when they I guess got slapped. Like we can't use the picture. There's a picture on the back. I forget who is some girl in the back Uh that's blacked out. And then there was Disney. There was a Disney thing on the front. And so instead of to save money, I guess they stuck like black stickers over. Interesting. And the one I have has a black sticker on the back, but not on the Disney front. And it's in like pristine shape. I used to have that. It was a great price, but uh, that's an incredible record. Yeah, it's, it's, It's possibly my favorite Sonic Youth, to be honest with you. I wouldn't argue with it's yeah. it's not necessarily my favorite, but I would never argue with someone that says it is because it's fucking great. So good. Um, I, I saw him on that tour. I saw him the tour before that too, but that tour was like one of my favorite times seeing him live too. They were, I mean, the run for me, the run from like Evolve to Dirty. Yeah. So good. I mean, I like all the stuff to be honest with you, but that's that's a good run. So that's a I good place think. for the record to live. Who's on the other side? So on the other side, on the other side of the bed is Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, Nebraska. That's a great album too. Though. It is. It's so good. Not exactly uh, much in common with Soul Side, although it's got a little in common with Girls Against Boys in the gravelly vocal kind of department. Characters of down and out people yeah 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 i mean bruce springsteen's a punk yeah he loves punk he loves punk he's done the Um, saints and the clash and can't think of who else he's done a bunch of punk covers when he uh suicide he did a suicide cover too that's that's right didn't he work do something with patty smith or she did the song uh, because the night is a song he wrote for her yeah that's it Oh, and he originally wrote Hungry Heart for the Ramones. Right, right. Yeah, so. But they the didn't boss, want it. Man. <laughs> yeah, which is crazy, right? It's a great song. Yeah. yeah. Um, so mine lives 
Uh, I have a ton of Soul Asylum records. Oh, do you? So it lives yeah. it lives next to Soul Asylum. Uh, if we want to get specific, the last, the newest Soul Asylum album I own is uh, "Let Your Dim Light Shine." How is that one? That that's the one from like '95. So yeah, I remember. That's when good. It yeah, it's really good. I I I really wasn't a fan of Grave Dancer, but. Um, I, did, I, did I like love... Grave Dancers a lot, but to me, the twin tone stuff is the best yeah, stuff. It's so um, good. And, and Hang Time, which is the first yeah, exactly. major Hang Time was great, too. You're really right. Good. But um, yeah, so next to them. And then on the other side is uh, Speak 714, which is uh, Dan O'Mahony from oh, No For uh-huh. An Answer uh-huh. and uh, 411, yep. which... Bobby was on Dan O'Mahony's YouTube oh, podcast right. uh, a couple I months saw back. That. Yeah. yeah. And it was a good, uh, a good listen. So there you go. It ties it all into a <laughs> nice little bow. Exactly. There it is. All right. So that's that. Everyone knows where our records live and how much we love Soulside. Uh, now let's hear from Bobby Sullivan and Alexis Fleishing. <laughs> Thank you both, uh, Bobby and Alexis, for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah. So we're talking about uh, Trigger today. And why don't, why don't you guys uh, give a little backstory as to the goings on between the LP and this record? My sense so far in dealing with Alexis these days is he has a better memory than me. <laughs> oh, so I'll let him start. <laughs> I, I feel like that used to be the case, but it's definitely not the case anymore. 
Um, my memory is that um, <clears throat> we had done um, we had done the first EP at Inner Ear, and it sort of had a combination of of Inner Ear and Black Pond Studio stuff, and we did uh, most of it with Chris Thompson, and then Chris uh, Chris quit, and we had to scramble to find a new bass player, which was Johnny, who is the new guy. We call him the new guy all the time. Still, <laughs> still call him that. But we recorded this at Inner Ear with uh, Ian, I think, right? And, um, Ian and Eli. And Eli, yeah. And uh, I don't know, it, was, it went pretty smoothly. I, mean, I, was, I was getting really into early rap at that time. So that influenced a lot of the beats that I was coming up with, especially like Run DMC and stuff like that. And, uh, um, and so we threw that in. But we had been writing these songs for a while and touring and playing them on the road. So... Yeah, that's, that's sort of what, what I remember. What about you, Bobby? I mean, I think of Trigger as kind of the first Soul Side album because the first Soul Side album really is more of a outgrowth of Lunch Meat. And by the Trigger album, we had actually found our own sound, which at the time was distinctive. I don't think anybody sounded like that at the time, even though you can hear like a Ruts influence or Empire or some of the British bands that um, our older friends in the DC scene had been feeding us for years. <laughs> um, you know, literally. Yeah, Trigger is the one where I felt like our sound had a, an identity, basically, where we were really rolling with this reggae bass, Alexis bringing beats, and um, Scott just providing that noise over top of what was easy to sing melodies on top of. And the thing that I remember that was, it was, I thought was cool was our creative process. Alexis would come with a beat and we'd start with that. And it's still like that today. Like each person originates songs. So it's not like um, one of the, the bass player, or the guitar player comes with these music sheets and like, okay, everybody here's your parts, you know? Right. It could easily start with just something as obscure as one vocal line or just a bass part. Yeah. And then, and then we would collaborate and things would change when we would play in Scott's basement, Scott's parents' basement. Um, the songs would morph a lot. And then we would, you know, depending on whether Bobby needed extra space for lyrics or there's too much space, we would sort of move stuff around to, to fit. And then we would road test these songs a lot. I think we toured, Bobby, you might remember better than me, but I feel like we toured kind of incessantly. I think we, we toured in 87 and 88. Like 88 was a lot of touring, I think. Um, and, you know, I listened to the album this morning and it's, it's, it's interesting how we stacked like the first four songs or whatever are really that new soul side sound. And they're all stacked at the beginning of the album. And that kind of made me wonder, I wonder if you remember Alexis, like when did we write Name in Mind and Trigger and Baby? Because the, the, those really defined this new direction for us. But I feel like when I look at the dates of the album, it doesn't make sense or even the recording, it felt like we wrote those songs and, and people in DC knew them much earlier. Yeah, I feel like Baby, Baby had been, we had been playing Baby for a while. Um, but I'm not sure about, I think name and mind we played a fair amount, but I'm not sure about trigger. 
I kind of remember. Remember problem space trigger. traveling. We were, we wrote and we wrote that song in about I don't know five minutes after Bobby got mugged. That was, oh, yeah, wow. yeah. <laughs> that was a great song. We, it was so it was it was one of those things where you're working on a song for whatever hours and then and then Bobby comes in and he's like I just got fucking mugged. <laughs> so we, we wrote that song problem place was traveling just from the energy and the sort of. I guess negativity or whatever that we were all feeling, and it just spawned the song in in a few seconds. I love that song, but but uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite songs on there. Funny things where a song just pops, like you work on one song for hours, and the song just comes up really super fast. Yeah. And speaking of that one, I noticed that uh, on the record and on the uh, on Discogs and all that, the the track listing always says that 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 song is the last song but it's obviously the last song on this first side. Like that song switched with uh, Forgiveness. Yeah, I wonder how that happened. Oh, you don't I guess we, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess we did the artwork first or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think for Forgiveness to me is more of like an older, older kind of soul side song, right? You think, Bobby? I mean, it really reminds, it's so much like Killing Joke. Um, it, it's actually one of it's one of my favorite songs to sing. We couldn't really pull it together for our live shows, <laughs> but I love that song. But I can definitely hear that influence. Like we probably heard that, and we're That's like, true. "That's true." Yeah, let's do let's do this. Scott's got this riff. Yeah, yeah. But but back to problem space when traveling. You know, I think that's an example of what I hear now in the songs that we're composing for this new album is these guys ability to turn out music that's very emotional and that the music actually has a feel that then I can adapt the lyrics to based on the feeling that the song already has just from the music. Yeah, I could totally see that. And that that's why the that that song was based on you getting jumped cuz I always took it as a uh, kind of a spiritual philosophic type of celebration of uh non-attachment and uh vulnerability that's so interesting it came out of you getting jumped <laughs> yeah it's based a lot of my experiences in boston because mm. when i would wear sunglasses i wouldn't get jumped but looking like a punk rocker uh back in the mid 80s it was uh, especially in boston very i was getting in fights every weekend wow. but i just noticed that uh that's you know that's why it's like I've learned to fight <laughs> in the song. <laughs> um, I, I I always think it's it's you know just contextually it's really interesting how uh, I mean I'm sure people still people be getting jumped all the time but I just that was like a, such a common thing is to be a like a punk rock person getting picked on constantly. It doesn't seem to be. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm, I don't look like I never have looked that way exactly, but but the, it was just a constant thing of of just getting messed with because you didn't look the way your, you know, people wanted you to look or whatever. And it, it, I feel like that is not kind of the way anymore. I mean, people still fighting and everything, but you think that Bobby, I mean, it, it just seemed like it was just a, it was a constant part of life. It's like walking down the street and getting messed with. Yeah. And dreads were very confusing for people back then. Mm-hmm. You know, they literally thought that um, you used cow manure or something. And I definitely remember MTV being the thing that it occurred to me changed all that. 
because all like then MTV came out and you had all these alternative looking people on there. And uh, I really feel like that did change our condition in society where people were just really triggered by us. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. That's probably true. MTV probably, well, um, MTV obviously was a huge cultural turning point, but yeah, bringing, bringing that to the masses and making it all cool suddenly must've changed everything. Right. And even just the, just the awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, at least once a week, if not more in the eighties, even just having a crew cut or looking the least bit punk, you know, you cars would stop or people would yell and throw stuff at you. you know? mm-hmm. I remember going to Florida and, or maybe it wasn't Florida, it was probably Arizona and uh, going through. And it was always like, you know, people would be like, ah, oh, circus is in town. When we walked through. <laughs> and then going, I went to Florida, like, you know, in the nineties and everybody is like, the tattoos and eyeliner and you know everything hair is all gelled up and they're still still like freak you know <laughs> like wait what <laughs> that's funny why'd you call the the title of the first song baby i remember we we, we have been discussing like a lot of music from the 60s and 70s would always have baby in the title like oh baby baby you know mm-hmm. and we just thought it like it just kind of dropped off the off the radar and the in the eighties and, you know, it just seemed, it just seemed like, you know, especially for punk rock, it was not something you would say. So we thought it was pretty funny to bring baby back into the lexicon as a, as a like, hey, why not baby? Babe's kind of nice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Is that, is that sound right, Bobby? Yeah. I mean, listening to the record this, this morning, I was really remarking on just, how this record is very much people from people who are coming of age, you yeah. know, go, going from boyhood to adulthood. And so it, it would make sense that we'd have a little inside joke there for the song title, but we also enjoyed making rather than take the title of the song from the main refrain in the chorus, mm-hmm. we definitely enjoyed coming up with song names that, added a new dimension to the song. Sure. I mean, that that's just one more element that seems to have uh, morphed or elevated from the previous, previous songs. I mean, it seems like every element got fully baked by this record. You know, every instrument, the lyrics, all of it, because, you know, even the way that you play drums, Alexis, you know, you slowed things down, kind of simplified your your approach to more groove based. It sounded like versus playing kind of more busy. I don't think I've ever been accused of playing <laughs> not busy. <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> added a lot of roles in there, but uh, but yeah, I did definitely slow things down for sure. Um, I think I think that we we had seen so much music that was you know you sort of like what it was that paddle beat. Or it's like took it, took it, took it, took it kind mm, of thing. Mm-hmm. We, we just we just wanted to do, or I I did, I think we all did, but wanted to do just try something a little different. Not that they were opposed to it or something, but it's like we don't need to do that. It's been done a lot, you know. Right. It's interesting this period of where the show's at with with Discord, because there's the couple records around yours, the fire party and Fugazi. There's definitely some similarities in sound between all of you, but 
also you don't sound anything alike. So it's kind of interesting. I think that was the great thing about DC was it was just everybody fed on each other's ideas and energy and everything. And it was just really a, it was a really great thing to be a part of just having all these ideas flying around. I and mean, obviously uh, there were really great bands in DC that we were all watching. And, you know, if it was forgot uh, happy go licky or, or uh, right to spring or something like that, or, you know, or just like just playing, going to play shows and just talking to each other and just, and hearing these things live, it's just like, Oh, that's a cool idea. You know? Yeah. It was, it was even to the point where Scott's basement, where we practiced was, um, sort of catty corner to Guy's mom's basement. So Fugazi was practicing just a stone's throw away. Oh, that's wild. <laughs> it was is. it King Face practicing over there too? Or they were practicing at your house maybe? Or maybe maybe they were, I don't know. Where, where was King Face Pat practicing? I think Discord House. Oh. Yeah. There was the Slinkies that practiced at my house. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool to hear too to in retrospect pull apart the influences like you're saying early rap there's the reggae uh scott talked about being into industrial like all these different things coming into the uh not hardcore but kind of post-punky sound you guys were cultivating yeah i think we were we were i think it was like mandatory that when dc listened to wire we're all over oh, yeah. the wire and buzzcocks and all that, all that, you know, the jam and stuff like that. And then, and then there's a bunch of Chicago stuff like ministry and even scratch acid, stuff like that. We love big black. Um, naked Raygun. Naked Raygun. Yeah. And then even go-go we're in the go-go. Um, well, plus, you know, we had beef eater too, you yeah. know, so like a punk funk thing and building on the big boys, what, what they had kind of done. Right. And so, and then King Face was doing basically like rock and roll punk rock. So everybody was was going in some direction, very post-punk direction. Right. And it, it feels like, uh, to oversimplify, like Revolution Summer kind of exploded and gave the opportunity to explore all these different directions and uh, more individual type of expression and you know all these things grew out of that like what where you guys went and like you said bands like happy go lucky and these things that were so far away from hardcore yeah gray matter mm-hmm. yeah definitely oh speaking of revolution summer you you're quoted in dance of days is talking about the uh, kttk as being lyrically at first inspired by uh being frustrated with everybody saying that 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 whole time period was done and and dead or whatever that spirit can you elaborate on that yeah i mean i think it was it was also not just people being that way but also i think the core band of revolution summer really was rights of spring and they had broken up and so i was feeling like no we can keep we're keeping this going <laughs> let's keep it alive you know this is yeah this is something that you know doesn't go away so is that part one or part two bobby <laughs> <laughs> yeah i, I like how it. eli e eli got in in there <laughs> since we're talking about lyrics a little bit too a couple of the songs actually you know i was stoked at the time because I was relatively new to being, but I was vegetarian back then and 
seeing you have these kind of if not direct like semi-oblique references to uh animal liberation in the songs like you know that that seemed definitely unique besides Beefeater for the area at the time yeah i think johnny and i were both vegan at that time so mm. it was very much plus i mean it's funny because you know I, I still work in health food stores co-ops and so it's funny to think of how veganism was so much a part and still is for some people, it's really like a part of their identity. And it mm -hmm. certainly was then for me, but um, at this age, I'm not really concerned with, you know, figuring out how to define myself. It's not as, as important to be a vegan or a whatever, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but back then it was kind of important. Yeah, exactly. Also, I think it was, it was, considerably more difficult to be vegetarian or vegan back then on tour. It was, if I recall correctly, unless we were just because we had no money, we could only eat in places that had burgers or something like that. But it seemed like very difficult to, uh, to have, be vegetarian on the road. But it could also be that in our, in our economic situation, we were not, we <laughs> couldn't go to a lot of, I, mean, I guess we, we went to, we basically just ate at grocery stores. So we'd always be eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or something like that. Sandwiches, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think it also, it's also like represents the idealism of the time too. You know, there was a lot of ideas going around and just like the, the direction and sound that people were taking, um, activism was ramping up, positive mm -hmm. force was a core part of the scene. Um, thank God feminism came into it. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of that kind of revolutionary vibe, you, you've got the Eldridge Cleaver uh, quote on the lyric sheet too. What was the thought behind that in relation to this? I know Soul on Ice was a, a pretty big book back mm -hmm. then to many of us. I, I actually was thinking about reading it again hmm. soon. I mean, Eldridge Cleaver uh, became a pretty problematic figure. Right. Uh, but, but Soul on Ice um, was like Soul Dad Brother by George Jackson and just that it really opened people's minds in a huge way. That record also has a, a pretty cool sample that I remember Eli and Don working on with in, in the song War. Oh yeah. Um, that we, you know, Johnny and I worked at Ross Records at the time and one of the records that we were distributing was that um, Radio Freedom, the voice of the Af African National Congress huh. out of South Africa. Uh -huh. And so we sampled it from vinyl and I remember Eli and Don working on that and actually cutting and pasting it into the song. So the way that it, the timing is very rhythmical in that song yeah, was like happened just magically on the first try. Like they just cut it in and it just, it worked out really perfectly. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It totally fits really seamlessly uh, and adds another layer to the song. I remember you guys used to uh, at least, in my memory, at least a couple of different shows used to open with war. And that was yeah. a real powerful way to open. You'd often have the TV sets going and all that. <laughs> and the uh, <clears throat> people banging on springs and stuff. Right, right. At all. Yeah. That, I guess sure that was a bit later when we started getting into uh, that was power sort of like tools. Our, yeah. That was, <laughs> that was the, uh, the base seven inch. Yeah. Uh, but that was all kind of part of the same 
thing where we're just trying different things. Plus there was the punk percussion protests at the South yeah. African embassy. So, yeah. Yeah. That totally fit as an extension of that, of that spirit. It's true. What did Eli bring to the table for the recording? Well, Eli was, uh, was our sound man on tour. Um, so he, the thing that he brought was just being really, really familiar with our music and, and, and the, the desire to capture whatever we were doing live, which was a really, was great. And I think he was still kind of learning at the time how to do all this stuff. So uh, he and Don, you know, Don was obviously the, the maestro, but I think the two of them worked really well together. And, and, uh, and Eli brought a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the knowledge of our music in and, and great ideas and everything. He knew what you were trying to achieve in the studio. Yeah. Yeah. And him and Scott were really super tight, you know, like they would work on his guitar sound together. I mean, a lot of it had to do with the amp Scott had, but um, I, re- I always remember Eli messing with Scott's dials. And uh, I think we were really lucky to have Eli because I think that, you know, some later bands I, w- I was in made the mistake of being really emotionally attached to certain parts. And so you keep them in the song, even though it's not really working because the singer really just likes those lyrics or the bass player likes this. And I think having a third party that's sort of an objective listener um, and, you know, Ian was the, the same way. I mean, we were just so lucky to have him as a producer every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I, I always held dear was like, yeah, it shouldn't just be up to the band. You have to have those outside voices that are weighing in, you know, that aren't emotionally attached to anything. And so with Eli being on tour with us, yeah, he was there with us every step of the way. And even while we're composing songs. Hmm. I remember we, we, we went on tour and then, Bobby, do you remember we, we come home and record or did we record and then go on tour? I don't remember. Or was it just all one big soup where we were and record and tour and record? And, uh, I mean, well, I, I remember those, those days, it, like some of our, for me personally, like huge goals for me were like starting out was to, to play a show would have been amazing. And then to play, then to record a seven inch would be, or just record in general would be amazing, but then to put out a seven inch. And so this was still like, this was our first discord record. And that was really exciting for us to, to be on discord because we, the previous record was like a half, half release. And it was just, you know, really felt like we were just, like it was very exciting to be recording these songs and to be on discord and, and to be part of that, that family was, was super cool. Cause I know we went after, after uh, the first EP, uh, first LP, we went and toured the whole country and played a lot of shows. I don't know how long that tour was Bobby in a couple of months, maybe. Yeah, no idea. I used to have all the diaries with all the dates and they all got lost. Hmm. And we would just like live in our van and, travel around the country and spend days in certain towns where people would put us up very nicely and wait for the next show and then drive to the next show and finally make it to California and stuff like that. We, we never made it to Seattle. It's just too far and couldn't get any shows up there. But I think by the time we got back, we were a lot better musicians. Torn will do that for sure. So when I listen to this record, I wish I practiced more. <laughs> And we were really taking Scream's lead on that. I mean, 
I, I could be wrong, but I feel like Scream was really the only DC band that toured like that. I think that's right. And I think we, we played a bunch of shows with Scream in, in uh, like Rochester and um, I think uh, maybe Minneapolis. I'm not sure. But yeah, we played a bunch of shows with them and they definitely were out there touring a lot way before pretty much anybody, I think. Right? I remember that Rights of Spring, everyone was excited because Rights of Spring was going on tour, but they I think they made it up to Ann Arbor or something like that and came back. I think they they, yeah, they just they played one show. They were they were not into the tour. <laughs> <laughs> Most accounts say that you guys uh, you know would go to school and and then play in the summer and in the breaks, and then this the this year right before you recorded this was where you decided that you guys wanted to just do music and you weren't going to go back to school and it must have been what just a couple months after that like when you after that summer ended because then by december is when this gets recorded i know that we yeah that could be because i know that i was out of school for a year we went on tour and then we went to europe and then we recorded hot body ground so that was a pretty pretty ex, ex, uh, um, extensive bunch of touring and recording and, and everything. That was that was definitely like a year. So I guess that probably did come out. That did start sort of right after this record came out. It sounds probably right. And what uh, what what other kind of snapshot memories do you have of the actual recording of this? I just remember being in, in Don's basement. It being really dark all the time. And, uh, and I never wanted to leave the studio. <laughs> I just wanted to stay there and keep recording, but we were out of songs. So uh, <laughs> I have, I, I have great memories of Ian would always give me some kind of inspirational pep talk before going in there and doing the vocals. It was really pretty great. Like what, what kind of thing would he say? I remember one time he told me, you know, we're just going to do whatever you need. Like HR, like, you know, he does those back flips. We just strung the microphone cord super long out into the backyard so he could do those flips. Like <laughs> whatever you need to do, we're going to do it. So, you know, go in there and, you know, take care of this. <laughs> That's awesome. What do you think both uh, you guys individually, but as a band as well, that what do you think you learned from this time period? I don't know. I was, I was, uh, how old was I? 17 or something at the time. I learned a lot. I didn't learn enough. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I mean, I think, I think it was, it was really interesting to tour the U S and meet so many people to see first off that there were a lot of people that are into the same things we were into same mentality and that the world was, was a sort of sympathetic place in that way. I think we were sort of toying with this, or I don't know, toying is not the right word. Um, we were sort of, uh, I don't know if you remember Bobby, there, like there was always, there was always this, this sort of theme about selling out in DC and, uh, and everybody was adamant about not selling out. And so that was a constant, that was a constant narrative in our lives. It's like, is this selling out? Is this selling out? Is this cool? Is this cool? And like, couldn't sell our shirts for more than five bucks because selling for six bucks would be selling out. You know, we couldn't, um, we couldn't do Canadian national radio because that was selling out. And, and these were, I think these are, these are great discussions to have because I think these are still super important 
considerations to have. But I, I just remember that being an overwhelming uh, thing in our lives constantly, like was, was what we were doing, you know, like appropriate. I think it's, it's a real sign of being of that age, but I think it's also a really hopeful thing because I think people still do that uh, at certain ages. And I think it's good. Yeah. It's a little bit, a little bit, uh, you know, it's restrictive, (laughs) but, but it's also, I think it's a good, it's a good discussion to have, you know, to really, really examine every move you make and every, every decision you make in terms of how it affects other people and how it affects the world around you um, and yourself. Uh, so I learned a lot about that from this period of, you know, of being in this band and, and, and playing these shows, with, you know, in, in DC and everything. I don't know. Bobby, you remember that being a constant discussion? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was, I was definitely a proponent of the cheap t-shirts. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember my, but, having a discussion with my mom because my mom was an economist and I was like, well, we couldn't sell them for, she's like, why don't you sell them for 10 bucks? I was like, cause that wouldn't be cool. And she was like, why wouldn't it be cool? And I was like, because it's too expensive. And she's like, why is it too expensive? And I was like, because, because that's, that's like, it's too much to charge for a t-shirt. And she's like, all right, but well, what is the market? And we had, so these had this whole economic discussion <laughs> and I was like, but, but it's not cool to charge that much. She was like, but if people are willing to pay that, is that cool? And I was like, well, just because they can pay it doesn't mean they should. I'm like, you know, so it was like this, it was, it was funny. And this is all a discussion over, over saving there's an extra dollar or whatever for a t-shirt. And just thinking now, like we were charging, it would cost us five bucks to make a shirt and we would charge six bucks for them or whatever. It was like, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's almost not worth making t-shirts. <laughs> That was the, the, a, it was a constant dialogue back then. It was. The, the things that stand out for me are, you know, that we really weren't playing clubs, right? So we were playing a lot of... I, Alexis, do you think, like, you remember when we played with Dag Nasty at that VFW Hall or whatever it was in San Diego? Yeah. That was one of the biggest shows I think we had played at the time. Yeah, that, um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like, I don't know, 500 people or something. It might've been a thousand. I don't know. Um. But it's like, so for me, what really stood out was the, the do it yourself DIY ethic was something that we really were empowered by. You know, we were, you know, booking the tours ourselves on a free long distance line that we had access to, but then also like the cultural differences around the country, you know, because we grew up in a pretty small town washington dc is not new york or chicago or detroit or you know la and so very interesting to visit with these communities of musicians and intellectuals and artists and writers in you know chicago had its own style going on you know um, la wasn't a place that we really were going to but san diego had its own thing you know and uh, that's true. I like found San Diego that was very fascinating. I think San Diego was very, very similar to DC ideologically, and LA was mm-hmm. really not. LA was very, was very business. It felt like I could see that and back then, especially as opposed to right now. Anyway, for quite a while, each town had a different type of 
both vibe and sound to the to the scene in that town yeah like, and then we'd play like cbgb and then it's like the sound quality was just like incredible mm-hmm. compared to playing in a vfw hall where the sound guy set up everything that day you know or an hour ago and then boston hat is a music town so it you know but then it also had the, a much like tougher scene like new york did so I, I recall the picture of us at CBGB where we're giving flowers out to the skinheads in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go over? It went over I, pretty well, actually. Yeah. It went over pretty well. I mean, I think <laughs> that's one of the things too, is that I think that everybody had a sense of humor. I mean, not everybody, but most people did, you know, there were definitely conflicts. And I think of this a lot today because, you know, it, our discourse today is not, uh, marked by conciliatory <laughs> yeah, civility. And I feel like there was that. I, you know, I, I could be romanticizing it a bit. Um, well, we, we definitely had a lot of skinhead problems, and that was not very civil. No, no. Although I was saying they were dealt with it like a true diplomat. Um, yeah. I mean, there were times where we would sit down with these white supremacists and actually discuss. Okay, you're belie- like I remember uh, in Canada specifically, we had Sean Brown with us as a roadie, and this guy wanted this guy was not a violent guy, he defined himself as an oi oi. Like, I've never heard that before, it's yeah. a little weird, but you know, he had glasses, and you know, we're sitting there with Sean Brown, who's African American, and I was like, Well, okay, to your ideology, you're superior to this guy right here, but um, you have glasses he doesn't need glasses. So who's superior? <laughs> like if, if we're really doing that. <laughs> God. Yeah. And I remember having discussions with people where, where they were, it was interesting. I wonder if this is still even possible. I imagine it probably is, but where, where you talk to somebody and they'd have some, you know, totally racist ideology and you'd be like, I don't know. I don't really see that. You know, and they're like, really, you don't? And I'm like, no. And they're like, huh, I never really thought of it that way. It's interesting. And then, and then you felt like their mind, like they're, they had actually heard you know, what you were saying. Started to think about things in a different way, which is really, really positive. You know, like you, you got the sense that they, they had always thought this way because that's, that's the way they're, they had been raised. But then, and I think that was the cool thing about, and it's still the cool thing about music is it's, it's a way to, to spread ideas in a very palatable way and, and make and make people's you know horizons expand a lot absolutely because something about just the uh, combination of instruments and voice somehow creates a, a more universal language than you know yeah. whatever we work with has so many more divisions than what you have with music yeah for sure and then people, I think people, even though we weren't uh, becoming icons or rock stars, I think because we were the ones on stage, people were willing to uh, listen to what we thought. And then of course there was always interviews uh, with fanzine people. And so your thoughts were getting recorded and transcribed and then printed you know, after the fact too. So it very, that interchange of ideas was, 
going on like at a pretty rapid pace for pre-internet times. And, you know, we're on tour. We're picking up the fanzines at shows. Plenty of time in the van to read that. You know, you get to, you know, learn what SNFU thinks about or the Beatniks or, you know, MDC or whoever, you know. Right. What, you know, besides, I guess, the obvious local bands like Swizz and other concurrent bands at that time, uh, what other bands did you feel affinity for around the country? Basically, those ones I just mentioned. I mean, I don't think we ever played with MDC, but I remember them being at the Gilman Street shows. Um, Play with it. Was an MDC at the San Diego show? Oh, maybe. I don't know. MDC, FOD, Dagnasty. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember we would tour with with bands. You know, it was really exciting. Like SNFU was, we they were really cool. We played with a band called Short Dogs Grow from San Francisco that we really liked. I played with Operation Ivy. They were really cool. Um, Agent Orange. We were playing with this band St. Vitus in Atlanta, and they were really cool. I liked them a lot. I mean, it, yeah, it was just fun to, to play with these bands all around the country. And, uh, and, and yeah, the Beatniks uh, was David um, Michael Franti's first band. Yeah, yeah. And they were touring with DOA, another band that we really loved. We played with them in Ann Arbor. <laughs> and uh, it's funny because I was talking to Michael Franti a few years ago about that, and he he told he was like. Oh yeah, I remember Soul Side. Yeah, you guys had the sun on, on your T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And and you know, which kind of speaks to the fact that our age, you know, when when you look at the timeline for Soul Side, it's not very long. You know, like you can see that in Alexis's book, wonderful mm-hmm. book. Um, it's not a very mm-hmm. long time span, but such a pivotal era in the development of our brains, I guess, because it's it sure seemed like a long time. And the bonds of friendships that we made at that time were just so significant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you yeah. packed a lot of energy and experience in into that time as well. I think. I think the cool thing about Trigger was was that we were we were all growing up pretty. You know, it was a really pivotal time of growing up. And then, and Bobby and Johnny were working at Ross, so they were bringing in a lot of reggae stuff. And I was I was listening to a lot of rap and a lot of classic rock and Scott was, you know, listening to a lot of uh, more industrial sort of and, and wire stuff and killing joke. And so that was like his guitar sound really, you could hear that in big black and scratch acid and, and killing joke wire stuff. And um, I think that that was what made trigger the, the soup that it was. I think, but also that bad brains, I think I and I, I against I came up right before that. Is that right? I know that was a that was a pretty big. I mean, Bad Brains, of course, hugely influential on us. But but that was a huge shift for them to go from you know band in DC to I against I. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's interesting that, I guess, like what you were bringing and what Bobby was bringing, was musics that tend to be more uplifting stuff. But it's it's interesting to have a lot of the the darker industrial and experimental heavier post-punk type stuff tends to be a little more nihilist, but you guys' sound had a total uh, anthemic quality 
once you put it all together. Yeah, it was funny looking at Scott's guitar now because it, it's changed a lot over the years. But to go back and listen to his early stuff, it's really, really interesting. I think it's really unique sounding guitar style. Oh, absolutely. He was experimenting. Yeah, I definitely remember uh, Scott being a, a standout for sure. Like, I don't, I don't feel like anybody was really playing like that when he was. And uh, I think the the I think I always felt like what was really interesting was the contrast between my sing-songy vocals and and then his noisy guitar. So I think that was like a almost like a conflict happening within the music that just created a more dynamic thing. And sorry, Alexis, I no, no, I, was, uh, I agree with you. Yeah, he was he was playing. Uh, he had the one of the great things was he he uh, had uh, he had a Marshall stack. That he would spread across the stage so he'd have a speaker on each side of the stage and uh um one of the when he had a slanted cabinet that he claimed that they when he bought it he claimed that it had fallen off uh, iron maiden's truck and so we were, like we got the iron maiden sound <laughs> that's funny and then johnny has svt so i think that was and that was i think svt is like actually it's kind of a standard now for everybody but but yeah having the the marshall stack and and I guess Scott messed his guitar up with, with his different humbuckers and stuff like that. He had SG, like every every DC band has to have an SG. He he actually sold his, he traded his, he had a, I think he had a, a Les Paul gold top that he traded for an SG, which was, I don't know if he regrets it, but he certainly is not that psyched that he got rid of that Les Paul. But <laughs> <laughs> also back then you could get, those guitars and and drums and all that stuff was it was pretty cheap because people wanted new stuff and that stuff was all old and you know you could just pick up a, an sg or a les paul pretty pretty inexpensively yeah Not it's anymore. amazing to think that now yeah <laughs> exactly yeah you mentioned the book you know do you want to talk about that alexis Sure. Uh, uh, you know, I, one of the annoying things about me is that I take a lot of pictures all the time. So I always had a camera with me. And uh, um, so I thought it'd be fun to put together all these photos that I that I took over the years and other people have taken that I that I got <laughs> and, uh, and put together a book just to sort of uh, document that that period of time. I think I think that the thing that was for me that was really interesting is that it was I mean, I learned so much from these guys and you know you learn a lot from being in a group of people how to make things and how to get along and how to navigate all of your own you know things going on in your head to make something work is is a is a uh, it's a great learning experience and and on top of it to be part of the dc scene and to be able to get to do the things we did like to travel as much as we did which is you know incredibly influential and then to you know like I was saying, one of the things that was super exciting was to, to be in a band and then to get to play a show and then to get to record and then to get to put out a seven inch and then to get to put out a record on Discord and then to get to go to Europe. These were all things that were like, these were like goals and milestones that I was, I, I think we are all very, very excited about. So that the book sort of just talks about all that. And I think the culmination of going to Europe was really, was really eye-opening. And I think a lot of the things I reflect on now as a as a aged person is just how much technology has changed and and to put these things in a context where like something like putting out a seven inch is a 
you know, it's something that it would be, it's kind of inconceivable for somebody, so for a band like us in the 80s, and we got lucky to do it. Now I think putting out a seven inch is pretty easy to do. But back then it was not easy to do. And to, to get on a label, I think getting on a label is still, still hard, but, but uh, you know, all these things, you know, like just even the idea of, of getting equipment to play in Europe was, was very difficult, you know. They just, we just couldn't, it was hard to find the right kind of equipment. I think we wound up using Fugazi's equipment over there or at least some of their cases or something when we flew over to Europe. So, so just all these technological changes uh, that are hard to contextualize now because it seems so, you know, so I was like the idea of staying in a hotel with Agent Orange because, you know, we never stayed in the hotels, but we when Agent Orange, we play with Agent Orange in Minneapolis, we stayed with them at the Motel 6. And that was a huge, huge thing for us, you know. <laughs> Uh, I think now staying in Motel 6 is probably not that big a deal. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it is. It's still money. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, like when we would go on tour, gas was about 85 cents a gallon. So that was certainly manageable. That's true. And you guys uh, on the record, you, I just realized that uh, the other day when we were talking about it for the show with my co-host that you've got the Sammet logo on there too. Like I didn't even realize that until just the other day it's on just kind of, uh, it's on trigger yeah it's on the back of trigger next to the discord one so that kind of just as a homage to them i was surprised because i was looking at it today too with the song list and i was really surprised to see it listed as a split label mm -hmm. so i you know i think discord was definitely the driver yeah. for this one and so, uh, but I wouldn't want to undermine Amanda by saying that. I, I think it was also. She didn't have anything to do with it. I think it was also a thing because Amanda was trying to get her label off the ground and she had very nicely put out our records, the first couple of records. So I think it was sort of a, a way of, you know, it elevates her mm -hmm. you know, sandwich to be, to be a split on Discord. I think it was sort of like a, it was a whole bunch of cross pollinization things happening. Yeah, it makes sense. Giving back. Yeah. And what was the idea between, you know, uh, with, or whose idea, I should say, was it to, to have Johnny on the cover, the new guy? It was Scott's. Uh, Scott um, put the artwork together, and uh, I forget, I feel bad about this, I forget who took that photo. I just saw the, the original one recently. I wasn't involved Maybe maybe Sean Scallon. Maybe he took a lot of our. Yeah, I don't know if it was Sean, but it might have been. Sean did a lot of a lot of stuff. Um, but that mural of Marilyn Monroe, I think, is still there. Uh, it's it was taken on the roof of uh, of a building on the corner of Calvert and and uh, and Connecticut. Food for Thought wasn't didn't move from there at some point, did it? There was some reason why they were on the roof, and I feel like it had something to do with with the guys in gray matter. Um, but that photo, uh, I think Johnny oh, from, from, from that last gray matter show that they had on the roof, maybe, maybe, but I don't think, I don't think that's the same place. Cause I think they did that. Up. No, no, Alexis, you're talking about the photo on the back cover, right? Is that where it is? Or is it on the lyrics? I think it might be on the lyrics. There's shots on we're, both. We're standing, we're standing in front of the Marilyn Monroe mural that was at Columbia Ro Road in Connecticut. Yeah, it wasn't food for thought. No, no, but I, 
for some reason I, I, I associate, maybe it's just because that, that shot was taken on the roof as well. I don't know why uh, yeah. Johnny, anyway, yeah. Anyway, it's a really cool photo. That's why we chose it. <laughs> well, also Scott was, he was using a Xerox machine to take it from the negative or a contact sheet. I think it was from a contact sheet and then enlarged it. So it just had that really cool grainy uh, quality to it. And I really like um, the update that Jason Farrell did to mm -hmm. it for the remastering of it. That was really cool how, I think that picture on the back is, is clearer. Anyway, he did a really great update that's pretty subtle difference. Yeah. yeah. The sun on the cover, right? Yeah. Uh, he's doing the new box set, the Discord box set. Oh, yeah. I know. That's going to be great. It's interesting you mentioned how he made the cover, the, the, the grainy aspect by enlarging or Xeroxing. But because you know how it is with, at least back then, with when you get a new record, the color of the cover, the look of the cover as you're listening to the record kind of influences how you take it in and i always kind of hear the songs off trigger with that kind of grainy type of vibe going on with the music as well yeah i also think it made a lot of sense to have johnny on there because the bass mm. you know especially compared to our first album the bass really stood out as more of a lead instrument the way it is in reggae yeah yeah, for sure. The the bass drives a lot of the melodies. I like how we left in a lot of the, the flubs yeah. and the kind of rough edges and unglamorous off-key parts. <laughs> also, there was no there was no Pro Tools or anything back then, so there was a lot of stuff that we luckily didn't have to think about fixing. You just couldn't really fix it. Now I think you get into like a whole mess of like fixing this and fixing that. And all of a sudden it's not really what you started out with, you know? So there's, there's a more immediacy with that kind of recording back then. It's just sort of like, it's, it's what you can do, which is, I think is, is really cool. Well, yeah, it, it captures the essence of the music more uh, of the energy of the music. And it, it, it seems like with Don and Ian, they wouldn't be wanting to use the Pro Tools approach right. even if they had them accessible at that point. Yeah, for sure. Anything didn't get to cover that came to mind for you guys in preparation for this episode? Really, I mean, we, we, we didn't touch about uh, on Pocket Hurts, which I think is a, is a really interesting song. That's that, I oh, think that yeah. was a much later, later song in that record. I could see yeah. that. I could see that. There's a lot of space on that in the music on that song and even the even vocally the way you sing over it i see it as like a rock going across water like bouncing across water versus it has a lot of different parts and it's uh for me that's that's more in line with where we were going mm -hmm. with the next record it totally has the sound of hot body gram you guys dropped the hint about the lp what's going on with that we are writing a, a very surprising amount of songs. Mm. So we have 11 so far, and there's four more wow. um, that I, I haven't been able to come up with vocals for yet. And the process has been really great. Johnny, Johnny is very much driving the process, mm. which is cool. And we have some songs that are fully formed and then others that still need a part or some tweaking. Right. 
And so it's very, very different than our normal, normal process because our normal process has been to take songs on the road before we record them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're planning to record with Jay Robbins in Baltimore. Oh, nice. So that'll be exciting in uh, November. And I think we got some really good stuff on this one. Oh, that's great. That's so good to hear that you've got more coming out that, you know, it's not always and not often that uh, bands from back in the day will record something new and have it be one, either not embarrassing or two, you know, strong in, in the next step forward and in the band's sound and evolution. But if, if that uh, seven inch you guys put out last is any, any indication, like it, it's exciting to hear that you've got a, got more in the works. Well, it's also uh, an outcropping of the fact that these guys have never stopped playing together. Mm-hmm. Alexis, Johnny, and Scott have played together ever since Johnny joined the band um, on a consistent basis. So they, they really work well together. It's, it's just amazing. Alexis and Johnny for being on the show. It's great to talk to all of them. Thank you for having me. Like I said, this is, I said it on the, uh, when I got to talk about screen, but then to actually be like a, a, a co-host, co-host yeah, yeah. was a, was a, was a, a thrill. It was a dream come true. Cool. Well, we're going to have uh what do they call repeating dreams? Uh, Recurring dream. You're gonna have a re- recurring dream potentially coming up soon. So I was gonna say to keep it, uh, to keep it, who's could do? Oh, dreams Recur- recurring. <laughs> dreams recurring. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we're at the end of the show, and at this point in time, we usually talk about Spotify. Also talk about Patreon, which I'll just briefly mention. The airing of this episode, we will have done our book club again the previous Sunday and our guest this time was Nathan Strajek from Teen Idols it 
means so much to me and and the people in the club of course too just to actually have the the, the live real people that are in these chapters you know to be able to consult them i mean i don't know it it's super meaningful and uh, yeah it's a trip i'll, I'll say as a as a patron of end on end not only am i a co-host but i'm a patron <laughs> um there's a lot of cool perks you guys have the bonus stuff um which it's cool because i'm like i have a lot to catch up on but i did listen to the jeff uh jeff turner was one of oh, I think, the first one. patreon ones right and he there was some uh you know yeah. just random talk there yeah um but like you guys have the bonus content you got this book club a lot of cool stuff and you know a couple people- extra episodes here and there whenever we can about the bands that aren't specifically discord but are discord adjacent and just as important to the dc scene yeah right and it's just uh it's it's worth it and every little bit helps okay i can say this as someone doing a pod (laughs) right you know Um, every little bit helps and and a lot you know for i know for brian and myself and others like i wish this was my full-time job but it's not like we work jobs and takes a lot of time and effort and you know equipment and making sure everything sounds nice you know, I see Brian's got the nice headphones and microphone and, you know, main, maintaining all that. So the Patreon, I think, is uh, definitely worth it. Throw a couple bucks. Yeah. I mean, any any amount help is appreciated and not required, of course, because show's free and all the main main Discord numbers and Discord fractions. Fractions, right, I was yeah, going to say. Are all free and always will be. But if you need to hear more, it's there. And if you want to support us, even better. But also at this time, I can't do the spiel, the spiel as well as Jeff, but we have a playlist on Spotify called the End on End Ever Evolving Playlist. At least I think that's the title. <laughs> and, it is. Um, it is. I'm, 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 I'm pulling it up now. I have it saved. You can... Uh, you can save the playlist and then that way whenever when we update it's updated there's it looks like there's a lot of followers it looks like right now there's over 3 hours worth of tunes yeah, there well over 3 hours at this point um and we're about to and make it yeah, even it's really longer really cool you could probably put it on shuffle and have a little party and <laughs> there you go but uh yeah so now we're about to make it two songs longer and I think since you're the guest of the episode, we're going to let you choose the first track. Hmm. So I already know what you're choosing. Do you? Because I'm just, <laughs> I'm just good. Yeah. You don't have a, you don't have a good poker face. I don't. I don't. Um. So I won't choose what you're choosing. You could, because I got, uh, a, I got a strong second too. But then, yeah. Then I'm wondering, what if, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> but it's honestly, it's tough. There's like. It is. I mean, the whole thing's great, but there's probably like four I could choose from and yeah. just be like happy Easy. with it. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to go with KTTK, Kneel to the King. Yeah, that's great. That would have been what I chose if you chose the one I Okay. Had. Yeah, that's just, <laughs> I mean, like you said, it's it's such a ripping song and those lyrics are great. Yeah, and um, it's- it's a great compliment to any other song that, that we would choose on here too, because 
just to have that kind of energetic and aggressive song next to one of the more mid-tempo. That was kind of the line of thinking I had was like, you know, better to have like one of the fast ones and then have maybe a mid-tempo one as, as the other. And you get the, you get the full experience, the full soul side (laughs) experience. There you go. I know. And what, (laughs) just curiosity, what, which one do you think I was going to choose? Name in mind. Well, I've got a name in mind. That's and not it is that. name in mind. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, I was like, if you didn't, I would be very surprised. Yeah. But you really can't, like, there's no, Hard there's to no go wrong. wrong choice on this one. Trigger would have been very easy to pick as well. God. Problem space when traveling. Shit. Yeah, there's a lot. That was almost like, I think my, uh, you know, because I knew that this was coming. So every time I listened, I feel like I'd have a different <laughs> one. I was like, I'm going to pick this one. Right. I do the same thing on our show. Like I like, I'll like sometimes wrestle with it and then last minute And then you surprise yourself at the last minute. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go with, you know, this, but yeah. KTTK for me. Nice. Good choice. So that's going to do it for today. You got a big one. You got a big one for your next one. Yes, we do, man. One of the biggest. Because we know it's a a multiple of 10. (laughs) Which can only mean one thing, right? Yeah. Yeah huge one yeah it is and oh god i'm so looking forward to it so fugazi the first 12 inch sometimes called seven songs i can't wait we got a great guest i'm gonna keep it under wraps for now but you couldn't ask for a better uh a better interviewer or interviewee sorry (laughs) way to pat yourself (laughs) Let, let you got Eddie Ve- you have Eddie Vedder. You have Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. I know oh, he yeah. loves Fugazi. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I, so I didn't mean to spoil it, but yeah, Eddie Vedder will be on next week. Well, and the, a, a little guest aside from uh, Michael Stipe as well. But yeah, that's right, Michael Stipe. <laughs> oh my God, I'd be in heaven. Right. All right. So why don't you uh, take us out? So yeah, thanks for listening, Brian. Thank you for having me. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to, like you said, live in this recurring dream again. (laughs) And, uh, I guess it's time to take it out with some rates of spring.